Okay, everybody, welcome to today's episode of the Chris and Paul Show, episode 952. And this is the number one hypertrophy podcast on the interwebs. Again, I just make that up. It's like having a number one, you know, world's number one dad. As always, I'm with my colleague and buddy, Chris Beardsley. Chris, how are you doing this morning, man? I'm doing okay. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Today, we are going to, what we were just discussing uh, in the preliminary conversations of this one, like what to title this. And what we're going to title today is a model that explains hypertrophy research. That is pretty much what you and I have collectively talked about for a number of years now, stuff that you kind of put together over the course of maybe like a decade of writing your articles, your Patreon, and all kind of stuff. And then once I found all your stuff, and that was also something we were talking about in my head as I was going through kind of your collection of stuff over the past, you know, decade and everything you've gone over. In my head, I started putting this together as a, oh, this is, this guy is actually giving me like a way all of these mechanisms fit together. And like my, my only thing I've ever taken credit for is when you and I started working together, you always gave me credit. You said you're the first person that ever figured out that I put a model together. So the, that's kind of something that we both, um, I'd say use the word like cherish and really look at and, and, and um, like I have a high degree of esteem for. So something we've tried to give back in the podcast, in our, you know, our content on social media, all the stuff that we do is helping people kind of understand physiologically, biomechanically, how all of this stuff works. And I've consistently said if somebody starts to understand the model, they'll really just get a very clear understanding of how research works. One of the things I really love that we do is when we send each other stuff and we just say, you'll, you'll know when you see it or like, tell me what happened here. You sent me that really great one the other day and you said, this is a banger study, just go read it. And I, I, I text back to you and I said, so what they said was the pump reduces mechanical tension. And you started laughing. You said, that's literally the title of like my infograph. So I really enjoy that kind of stuff that we get to kind of have together. Um, so today we're going to kind of give everybody the high level overview of, of these pieces. It's not every singular piece or every nuanced tiny piece, but kind of the, here's the kind of things you need to understand how they work to just look at research and say here's why the outcomes of this research showed what they showed etc so forth and so on yeah exactly and and i guess also um you know a theme that i've been kind of um sort of trying to transmit over the podcasts that we've done uh, is basically um just kind of throw down the gauntlet for people and say you know, if you want to build your own hypertrophy model and compete with the model that, that I built, you know, over the last decade, as Paul was just saying, you know, we are popularizing now. If you want to do that, go for it. But it's got to explain the literature. It's got to explain the hypertrophy literature. And, and just to kind of go one step further, you know, it's got to do that in the simplest possible way. You know, if your model has, you know, 20 different moving parts because it has a different explanation for every single training variable, you know, we're going to go on and talk about training variables in a minute. But, you know, if it has to explain the way volume behaves in one way, it has to explain the way repetition ranges in a different way. And it has to explain short rest periods in a third way. And it has to explain, I don't know, range of motion in another way. Then basically you're kind of making it very hard for people to accept that as a valid model. Um, you know, if we've presented a model that basically explains everything in two variables, then 
you know, kind of that's going to be more likely to be true just by Occam's razor. So, you know, that's kind of a theme that I want to kind of uh, put out to people is just say, look, look, this is a really easy model when you reduce it down to bare, you know, minimum. And we can use it to explain pretty much the entirety of the literature. And, you know, over the next kind of 20, 30 minutes, we're going to go through some training variables and show you how it works. But as I say, if you want to, to put your own model together, go for it. You know, you know, let's have some competition in terms of models of, of hypertrophy. That would be fun. But I'm not seeing any out there that are even remotely competitive with the one that we're promoting at the moment. So one of our golden rules that I'm going to break here for one time, simply because I was called called out, because I was called out by somebody. You don't want me to break our golden rule, one of our golden rules. Well, I was called out by someone. Then I guess we I won't say their name then if you don't if you don't want me to. But I was called out by someone. But this particular someone uh, misrepresented a, a bunch of studies, and he he's one of the people in this landscape has consistently driven me nuts because every time there's a study comes out, he just bases everything off that singular study. There's no model. So when you and I look at studies, sometimes we look at it and we go, um, the researchers don't know what occurred here or why it occurred. There's one, there's actually a metabolic stress study that I sent you one time. I remember Is this looking the at rectus femoris study. Oh, was it? No, it was the one where they determined that it was like the the shorter, it was the only time it's ever happened. And I sent it to you and you told me, I looked at that study forever and sent it to James uh, Krieger. And then all of us collectively were like, we don't know what happened here. So there, every once in a while, there's a study that happens like that. But anyway, the guy that literally made content calling me out, he has a really bad habit because he doesn't understand the physiology, doesn't have a model, any of this kind of stuff. Every time a study comes out, he says, here's what the research says. And I'm like, but that if you don't have a model and don't understand why that study showed what it, sto- what, what it shows, then you'll consistently be moving the goalpost every time a study comes out that maybe you think contradicts what another study said. So if you do not have a model of physiology, which is wild at this point, in my opinion, because we have decades of research on tons of the physiology that we talk about. So if you don't have a model at this point, you either need to create one or just use use ours. I mean, that's, that's pretty much, I mean, I don't know what else to say at this point. We'll, like create one and then challenge the one we have or just use ours and shut the fuck up. So that's just kind of how I feel. So let's get into kind of the, we have like, we have five kind of, you know, bullet points. I'll also say if we, we're not going to get into the like really fine nuanced details of some of this. We did, we actually did that on the last podcast, everything from like the ascending limb to the plateau. Descending exactly. Talking exactly. about lengthy relationships. So this one is, will kind of go hand in hand. If you listen to the last podcast and you kind of have an understanding of what we went over in the last podcast, we will go over in this one too, but kind of how all of that fits together. Yeah. I mean, basically we're going to run through a whole bunch of training variables and say, essentially, how does the model explain the results in the literature when um, researchers are doing strength training studies comparing, you know, say uh, high reps and low reps to failure, for example. Um, that I actually, kind of I actually realized that we have, as I go through these, the last two podcasts, we cover a bunch of these. So if somebody went over to these three, they would have a really good idea. They could actually go through these three podcasts and really look at literature and say, this is why this show what it shows. So let's get into number one. We'll look at the repetition range. Um, and you know, are, are you going to post this, this little kind of, 
this I would do probably not probably not you know immediately after the podcast goes out but it will okay. go out on my Instagram eventually I always find these to be really helpful for other people because then they can at least just get they're not reading a word salad and they get a high level overview kind of what we're talking about so the repetition range and this is what I was saying in the preliminary conversation about the whole metabolic stress bit which should have been obvious a long time ago to some of the people who were saying metabolic stress is an additive I I like to use the word additive because here's how I want to explain that so if metabolic stress or muscle damage or the pump or any of these kind of things, and you're going to be, I, we get on, for whatever reason, um, we get in sync on some topics sometimes, and the pump has been one the last week or so. We've gone back and looked at this stuff, and it's actually going to turn out the pump's probably detrimental, more detrimental to hypertrophy than, than an additive. But one of the things about the rep range, I feel like people should have had a light bulb moment on at some point was that if different rep ranges cause different type of adaptations, what they were would be, I don't know, is that it would show up somewhere over the course of repetition range studies over and over and over and over and over again. In other words, if you did, if you equalize things out, if there was an additive for metabolic stress or muscle damage or any of that kind of stuff, we would have seen that show up in some specific way in a rep range. Like a set of, a set of 15, because it had a metabolic stress component that works as an additive, then it would have shown more hypertrophy in some way, or it would have shown up in an adaptation in some way that we're not getting from sets of four to five or six or whatever. Yeah. I mean, basically the, the um, kind of literature started showing that, you know, you train with um, moderate loads, six to 15 rep maxes, and you train with light loads, 16 to 30 rep maxes. And as long as you train to failure uh, with the same number of sets, you get exactly the same, hypertrophy now somebody will always wheel out one study and i know that this is often done somebody will wheel out one study showing that that you know doesn't exactly work in every in every single situation but across the entire literature that is really 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 well established finding you know it's very very uh, repeatable uh, discovery so you know working on that basis we've got to explain why that happens well the stimulating reps model that we've been advocating essentially says that uh, only reps that have simultaneously a high level of recruitment and a slow movement velocity leading to a high level of mechanical tension will be able to trigger hypertrophy. So basically it comes down to the last, you know, however many reps of the set, whether it's four, five, six or whatever, it, it doesn't really matter that much, but it's those that fit those criteria. Um, that basically is really, really neat and tidy because it says that's explaining exactly why you always get the same result for the two studies, two groups of studies, because it's essentially the same phenomenon that's triggering hypertrophy in both of those cases. Um, in the case of the, for example, the three-part model where you've got metabolic stress, muscle damage, and, 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 and mechanical tension, that being the only competitor to our model at the moment, um, if we work on the basis of that three-part model, uh, essentially what we have to say is that what the, the researchers who, who, who use that model say is that the uh, moderate loads produce more mechanical tension and the light loads produce less mechanical tension because the fatigue mechanisms impair mechanical tension. In the stimulating reps model, we would argue that that doesn't really happen that much because the metabolites don't actually impair mechanical tension. Um, when we look at the, uh, the three-part model, it would say, well, you're making up for the absence of mechanical tension or the reduction of mechanical tension by the presence of metabolic stress. So essentially, you've got two things happening but somehow magically you end up with the same hypertrophy in both training groups you're, every yeah, single you're, I time. Was, yeah i was gonna say now you're when you start talking and get there i'm already ending the sentence i'm like so how did you end up in the exact same place 
So that's what I mean by the ad, an additive effect, right? So if you have an absence of mechanical tension, the additive effect of metabolic stress somehow is just exactly what so you need. You, yeah. Right. Which is weird because it, you would not expect it to be exactly what you need. You'd expect it to be very slightly different, at least measurably different across a whole number of studies, and it isn't. Right. Also because there would every contraction you do produces uh, metabolites. So yes. um, that would mean that every single person they ever studied produced equivalent number of metabolites in some way that equalized out the hypertrophy response, which would be well, that's definitely not true because physiologically impossible. It's yeah, an exactly. absolute impossibility, right? So the um, the the three pronged approach in that that's one I've had to hear forever, and that uh, hypertrophy is multifaceted. It's not multifaceted; it's just tension. Um, so the the rep range studies essentially show that anywhere from here's where somebody asked if you and I ever disagree on things and I say no I said but we debate tiny little nuances sometimes and I think the one when we were going through the effective rep study um, I really appreciated that we went through that one because that one kind of challenged the model a little bit right because we went through all the studies and I think you took that one slightly personally um, because it was it was like okay it extends out further and I don't know what the hell I'm talking about and this and that and so when we broke them all down the average over the course of your life is about five reps so you're like aha see so the only thing I think is it's possible it shrinks just a tiny bit as you become very well trained because you're if you have if you're just simply recruiting the same motor units that you have been forever and you're not finding a way to get into new motor unit recruitment and kind of tap into some fibers that you haven't created um, more potential uh, hypertrophy potential for even when you get into those i think the number of effective reps potentially shrinks maybe by a rep so it's kind of like when you're a newbie it probably extends out to maybe that six rep six rir and i think when you're when you're an advanced person, it might shrink to maybe four. And the reason why I say that is because um, if you're if you are tapping into some of those those fibers you haven't fully potentiated growth in, they're going to be the the most um, glycolytic type. They're going to be the most susceptible to damage, and they're going to be um, the first to fatigue. So it's, I think it's possible that maybe you're the the exist on the continuum is is that a beginner probably gets a little further away from failure and still gets some um gets hypertrophy stimulus and then the more advanced person maybe it's instead of being quite five it's four but again we're, we're probably that's just probably splitting hairs and just overly nuanced things so do, am i making sense to you when i'm talking about this uh, my numbers would be bigger than that because the example that i gave on that on that um um, proximated to pay the podcast was we have to remember that if you um, break a limb and have a cast on your limb for like five six weeks when you take that cast off and obviously the limb is atrophied you don't need to do strength training to put the muscle back it comes back on its own you know and you're training miles away from failure not even 10 reps in reserve i mean mm -hmm. it's way further than that so the point is that and if you take the same scenario with a sedentary elderly person you're going to again be able to create hypertrophy way way further away from failure i think yep. physiologically 
physiologically there are scenarios in which we're absolutely going to find possible hypertrophy occurring a long way away from failure. And obviously that means that untrained people are going to have the capacity to have more stimulating reps per set than a very advanced person. I would actually say that the numbers are probably bigger than that. I would probably say that the you know absolute beginner who's very sedentary probably is going to start out around eight. But you know I think that's going to come flying down pretty quickly over the course of a few weeks and months. Yeah, the the I don't want you to end up people getting confused because somebody's going to say what Chris said, and I'm saying <laughs> people do that anyway. So who cares? <laughs> I I think that yeah, if you're if you're very sedentary, untrained, or whatever, it's very possible the first few weeks of strength training, um, you could train eight RIR and still get some hypertrophy stimulus. And and I think my issue with this is that the people who are clearly contrarian against us, they take liberties with that kind of stuff. That's the reason why that I'm, I try to be like, after you're, you had, you know, you get into uh, even some of the research where they said, well, it's these, it extended out to six RIR and these were well-trained. I'm like, they had a 1.3 body weight squat. I would not call them well-trained. I'd call them at the high end of noob status. So if at the high end of noob status, right before maybe kind of cross over into that inter- intermediate stage, six RIR, probably still getting some stuff, not eight RIR. Um, if you're an untrained elderly person who is incredibly sedentary, you can do just about anything. You can do just about anything activity-wise and get some stimulus out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately when we say high level of recruitment, that high level of recruitment, you know, is relative. Require, that requires some context, right? So what's the high level of recruitment for like an Olympic level athlete? Yeah, exactly. What, what is, is it for you? What is it for you? What does that mean for you? I mean, if you've never actually recruited anything higher than 40% in your life, then anything right. higher than 40% is high. So, yeah, it's relative. Okay. So, in the repetition range, um, moderate 6 to 15 reps, you know, that's at a base level, that's something I consider heavy loading. Take it for hypertrophy stuff. Let's take out singles and doubles. To me, heavy loading is probably three to five to six reps that's probably heavy loading moderate loading is six to to 12 to 15 somewhere in there the reason i use these rep ranges the reason i use one to five as heavy is because one to five generally is going to hit max recruitment for most Mm -hmm. people um then six to 15 the reason i use that is because when you go over 15 into 16 you're going to start losing the ability to trigger an increase in motor unit recruitment it's really, really interesting. When you're training with the moderate loads, you're not going to benefit gains in recruitment as much as you do with a heavy load, but you are still going to make them happen most of the time. Once you go over that boundary from 15 to 16, again, don't, you know, people are going to split hairs on this They're and say, if I use exactly say, 16, no, 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 it's no, not no, just... But that kind of area, you're going to see a, an inability to trigger gains in motor recruitment as an adaption, which is really interesting because it's probably the afferent feedback from the metabolite accumulation or the cardiovascular activity that's causing that suppression of um, central motor command through the um, through the corollary discharge being squeezed because you've got other stuff in the perception part of the brain. So ultimately, that's why I kind of use that boundary. When you go over 16, and obviously the top end of that is when you cross over from light loads to very light loads, and that is 30 rep max 35 rep max again it's going to vary massively between people but that's where you cease to be able to actually stimulate hypertrophy in a meaningful way because (laughs) you're not getting vascular occlusion 
So mm. what I've tried to do with my rep range boundaries, um, everybody has their own rep range boundaries. What I've tried to do is anchor them in physiological events. Um, obviously, recruitment is my first physiological event. My second physiological event is the ability to stimulate increases in recruitment. My third physiological event, obviously, is the ability to stimulate hypertrophy. So, yeah, that's the, I, you know, what's weird is um, over the last few years, as you know, if we work together and refine my own training and my training in the groups and all that kind of stuff, I cannot imagine anymore doing a set of 15 anything, right? Like, I just can't imagine, like, what would be the need for it? Or even anymore doing stuff like every once in a while I'll do a drop set or maybe a rest, but it's so rare. But it's like, I see some people now, like, that's their whole workout. I'm like, no, it looks horrible to me. It absolutely looks like a horror show. So getting back to our rep ranges, um, I think that we use the Mangene study, one of my favorite studies that they've looked at, the Mangene study. Like I said, uh, anybody who hasn't looked at that one, that's one of my favorite for just kind of cementing, okay, look, you know, here's what we're you're going to see. Um, they used sets of three to five, ended up with, the same, with, I think it was sets of three to five, and they had greater hypertrophy outcomes relative to sets of 10 to 12. Um, and that is just due to the rest periods and the degree of um, metabolite accumulation that's basically allowed to subside. And so each set that you go into, you're kind of, allowed to get a, a little bit higher level of motor unit recruitment due to those rest periods. Um, I, I think that's has become understated now, whereas a few years ago when we brought up the fact that longer rest periods um, allow for greater motor unit recruitment due to the fact that there's um, a reduction um, in any type of negative afferent feedbacks that's going to reduce motor unit recruitment. Now people are like saying, oh, it doesn't matter. So this, this stuff kind of comes full circle in terms of being contrarian and argumentative. Um, but I don't think we're yeah we are going to get into the rest periods thing. Yeah, we can do rest periods now. I mean, yeah, we can that, was, straight the, in that from was the segue to move into rest yeah, periods. So absolutely. to tie these two in together, kind of make it one conversation. That was that was kind of my goal there. Um, for the the repetition stuff, regardless if you're looking at sets of this is where before we move on to the the, rep, the reps thing, this drives me crazy. People will argue with me and say if every set has five stimulating reps in it, which is not true. People try to act like that's a flaw in the model. If they're, if you're fatigued, there won't be five simulating reps. All right. Can we get that out of the way? I have to hear that all the time. It drives me nuts. I'm like, they're like, if every set has five, I'm like, we just, we use that as like a way to look at how many simulating reps potentially are occurring. So you can kind of count it. That's actually a discussion we've never brought up. So if, 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 if six sets to failure is kind of where the, kind of where the plateau is potentially going to occur for a muscle in a session. That means um, there doesn't something magically happen at that six set where after that, you don't longer get any simulated reps. What the best way we can explain this, my brain's doing that thing we talked about before it, where I'm, I'm putting a bunch of things in together where, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, but each set you do has fatigue uh, encapsulated in it. That's going to reduce the number of simulated reps in it. Um, so not every set has five stimulating reps or effective reps in it. Um, so if you're doing a set of say three to four reps, people will ask me if every set has five stimulating reps in it, then why aren't you doing five reps? And my, my answer is usually a, a set of four will have, um, full motor unit. If you're doing a set of four with a five rep max load, that's kind of 
what I felt like is almost like the sweet spot to be at. Four reps with a five rep max load. That's kind of what I have figured out. Um, really works for me. So if you're doing this, why wouldn't you do a set of five? Um, why why are you doing a set of four with one RAR? Um, do you want to take this one? Because you've done the same thing. So why 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 did you change over two to sets of four at at four sets of four at one to two RAR? Because there's very much um, a different amount of fatigue created by the more more moderate rep ranges. So drifting up from you know four to five to six to seven, drifting upwards, even though it feels like you might, or even though it looks like you might think there's no real difference between those rep ranges, um, there is actually a difference. And you start to find that the higher you go, even in that small rep range, the higher you go, the more fatigue you're going to get both in the workout and also um, post-workout. So we're getting both more metabolite-related fatigue, which is going to cause what we were just talking about, that um, afferent feedback, which we're going to elaborate on when we talk about rest periods um, which is going to then produce cns fatigue for the next set if we don't give ourselves rest periods but also it creates a bit more calcium unrelated fatigue which is then going to create a reduction in mechanical tension in the subsequent set which is something we'll come back to and talk about when we talk about volume today uh, that then causes a problem for post-workout so sticking with the kind of the four even though you might think well four is missing a rep in terms of stimulation um, sticking with the four actually um, makes the workout easier to do and it makes the next workout easier to do. Um, and so ultimately for a small loss of stimulus, um, you get that ability to train more often, which as you know, Paul and I are getting a little bit older now, is actually quite a welcome thing to have when you're kind of trying to grind away in the gym a couple of times a week. Well, since we're dinosaurs now, we are. Speaking, yeah, I actually, I hear this all the time from guys who are actually younger than me. And they're like, I'm, you know, whatever age, 40 or 42 or whatever. Everybody in my group thought I was 35, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but they're like, I can't train as heavy as I used to. And I'm always perplexed because I'm like, bro, I train heavier. or I've never not trained heavy, but I, I'm really training heavier now than I have in forever. I don't have injuries or problems. I don't know what all these people are talking about with their joint issues. Maybe they just have a really poor execution um, or something. But getting back to I've, that. I found sticking with machines makes things a lot easier to use heavy weights. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe the fact that I, I once I retired from powerlifting, I just stopped doing a lot of barbell, dumbbell exercises, and it just became predominantly machines. And I just don't ever have injury problems or joint or connective issues that people consistently talk about. And I'm like, I don't have any of these problems, so I don't know what you guys keep talking about. The only time I've ever had joint pain is when I did squats and bench. That's the only time in my life that I've ever had that, <laughs> literally. And I've and obviously you know I've been you know I trained to do one arm chin and I never had joint pain doing that. It's literally just squat and bench. I I don't know what people keep talking about when they're talking about all this pain they're having. How are you so wrecked with pain? And you're ten years younger than I am, and I train heavier than I ever have. But getting back to the the four rep stuff, so I switched over a long time ago. Uh, months ago it's a long time um and i started doing more sets of four and then leaving that one rep off and you have this kind of way that you um kind of like 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 gently coax me into kind of changing some of these things so i was like well, I'm gonna leave that one rep off i'm just gonna leave the one rep off and see what happens so i went back to kansas city for my birthday week and they have this particular nautilus machine and i was stuck on this one load for six months and I could only get three or four reps, really drove me crazy. 
And all I had been doing for months and months and months was sets of four with one RIR. And every once in a while, I'll do a back offset um, for like six to eight reps just for variety and something I enjoy doing. And I would try to take that one pretty much to zero RIR to failure. But anyway, I put this load on that I've been stuck at for like maybe a year. And I banged out a set of six like it was nothing. And I had to, I don't know if you, this has ever happened to you, uh, where you have to stop and you're like, what? Okay, there's like, how did that just happen? And I still, after all these years of training, it will happen every once in a while. So I knocked out this set of six with this load I'd been stuck after. It's like three to four reps. I could never quite get to that strong set of four with it. And it really drove me crazy. I just banged out a set of six. And it was probably two RIR, at least. And so then I sat there and I was like, I'm going to do another set. I'm going to do another set and see what happens. And I banged out a second set of six. I was blown away. And that was all for months of just leaving that one rep off. That was the only change in my training. I don't like to make a bunch of training variables changes at one time. I like to see if something's going to actually create an impact. And the impact was, you said this for a long time, that one rep to failure probably creates a lot more fatigue than people realize. And then if you stack on set after set after set to failure, to task failure in the workout, you're really creating a lot more muscle damage and a lot more fatigue that you have to overcome. And I don't think people realize just how much. Now, I'm not suggesting people avoid failure altogether, and I'm not suggesting everybody trained to RIR. What I'm saying is I think it's pretty valuable to leave that one last rep off more often than not and just – um, limit the amount of fatigue you're going to building because when you're using those heavier loads, you get maximal motor unit recruitment from the very first rep anyway. And I don't think that going to five, six, seven, eight reps, especially when, believe it or not, once you get past maybe six or seven, you really just start, in my opinion, to dip a little further away from maximal motor unit recruitment and a little more into the fatiguing mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing how many people that I talk to um, have, have similar kind of experiences when they, they just dial their volume back a little bit, um, leave some reps in reserve, and suddenly everything uh, becomes a lot easier to make progress. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, definitely there's, 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 there's proximity to failure issues. But um, bringing us back on track a little bit, because you know um, what we're trying to do with this podcast is talk about some training variables and how the model um, or models can explain those training variables. We've explained how um, the model that we uh, recommend uh, or, or, or promote is able to explain the differences in um, rep ranges. So, you know, different rep ranges will produce the same hypertrophy of training, the same number of sets to failure. Um, a three-part model, um, the metabolic stress, muscle damage, mechanical tension model has been proposed to explain that in a different way, but it's weaker because it doesn't, uh, it requires two um, two two variables to be to be actually moving against each other in exactly the opposite direction. So one goes up, one goes down in the same amounts, uh, in order for you know light loads and, and heavier loads to always produce the same hypertrophy. But if we now look at short rest periods, short rest periods is one of the really interesting ones because the three part model always argued that um, the short rest period would be better for hypertrophy because it would involve more metabolic stress. More metabolic therefore, stress. Yeah, therefore more. Uh, hypertrophy. Um, now, technically, you could argue the same thing um, in as as with rep ranges, and you could say, well, uh, we're losing repetitions, therefore we're losing mechanical tension, and therefore um, you know one thing is going up and the other thing is going down, so we're losing some mechanical tension due to the loss of repetitions on each additional set, um, but therefore we can make up for that with met metabolic stress. So maybe you end up with it, with it not making a difference. The reality is that 
um, long rest periods are actually superior for hypertrophy. And the stimulating rest model explains that without even needing to, you know, take a breath. Because ultimately, when we look at what happens with short rest periods, we are experiencing supraspinal central nervous system fatigue in the short period of time after the end of a set to failure. Now that is going to come from any sensation that we've experienced during the set. Mostly, it's going to be cardiovascular activity. If we have a very short rest period, it could also be afferent feedback from the metabolites burning in the muscle. But generally speaking, it's going to be the cardiovascular activity. Mm-hmm. That stuff is perceived as an effort perception, but it's not contributing to central motor command. And that means you're going to reach a maximum tolerable perception of effort earlier and that means you're going to lose stimulating reps this is really really important because people look at the subsequent sets of a workout and they go i've dropped reps from my first set but that's okay because i've still trained to failure and they're like no it's not okay if you're dropping reps that's you're actually dropping reps off the end not the beginning you're dropping reps that are stimulating so you if you're doing a 10 rep max in your first set and then you wait some minutes and then you do a nine rep of that 10 rep max for your second set that last rep you've lost on that set is a stimulating rep so that then tells us why short rest periods are uh, working the way they work in a very very simple way because it's just referring back to the two principles hold hold on because i don't want anybody to miss this because this has been an annoying ass question that i've gotten for a long time and it comes back to the, if every set to failure has five stimulating reps in it, you see where I'm going with this now. With you. See, that's what I'm talking about. And it drives me crazy. So if every set to failure has five stimulating reps in it, when we talk about stimulating reps, we're talking about getting maximum motor unit recruitment and mechanically loading those fibers. Correct. And that's literally all the stimulating reps model says. It that's doesn't it. say, it doesn't say five <laughs> repetitions from to failure. It doesn't say that. It says you have to have high recruitment and high tension. That's it. That's what the model says. And then you look at all the variables that can affect those two things and you start explaining how the how the hypertrophy literature works. And that's why the model is so amazing. It's like it literally explains everything. And people laugh, don't understand I'm that. because you're like, people have trouble with more than one concept, Paul. <laughs> okay, so the reason why that, that's just so funny to me is because if you tell people there's potentially five stimulating reps in a set to failure, what they think then is that any set to failure has five stimulating reps. I'm like, you're missing the point of the two principles that you need here high motor unit recruitment like at the high, the top end of the, of the uh, high threshold motor units that you can get to right because it's a little beginners have a deficit there and then as you get more trained you're able to access larger motor units so for the stimulating reps model it is saying that we need those two principles okay so fatigue can reduce that so if you take a short rest period and you do the next set and you lost reps, even if you're staying at the same load. So you take 100 pounds, 10 reps to failure, you rest 30 or 60 seconds or whatever. You take that 100 pounds, and then you're only able to get, say, six reps. You have a reduction in motor unit recruitment. That means the the largest of the fiber types that you were able to access in the previous set, you don't get to in that second set. So I think that that's why when people keep repeating that to me, I'm like, this just tells me you don't understand those two concepts, those two principles that fit in to create that the, the model. So every set you do has fatigue, even if you take the two or three minute rest, there's just less fatigue due to that. And something we also covered before in the metabolic stress podcast is that metabolites do 
they clear relatively quickly, but I think there's kind of um the research when you split it across, there's a massive difference between 90 seconds and two minutes, like a pretty massive difference. So we see that metabolite clearance. It's almost like it, I think it happens almost very suddenly once there's somewhere in there between 90 seconds, and two minutes, there's a more dramatic difference that's, that's happening between 60 seconds and 90 seconds. It's definitely not linear. I'll give you that. I mean, I, I've kind of been guilty, I think, of, of assuming it clears slightly faster than it does. I was just looking at some some data recently showing that it is probably a meaningful amount still there at five minutes. Um, mm -hmm. But generally speaking, a lot of it is clearing in the first kind of two, I think. Yeah, I, I I think that it's almost like there's that uh there's kind of an uh, an exponential amount of clearance that starts occurring after ninety seconds, but then kind of almost like plateaus for a little while after that for the next three to four to five minutes, right? Like we don't know, but there's definitely something in terms of uh, metabolite clearance that's occurring at greater degrees after ninety seconds than prior to ninety. I mean, that's in, that's in the data really consistently. It's like 90, 90, 60 to 90 second rest attenuate the myofibrillar protein synthesis because you're not getting that, um, that degree of tension from those highest fibers. Because yeah, you're simply not switching them on because the afferent yep. feedback is, is creating a problem there. So with the, if you're using to combine these two, we're using a high repetition range and short rest periods, just massively bad for getting um, a really good hypertrophy stimulus to be able to recruit those those fibers at the high end of the the motor unit pool. Yeah, and 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 the the stimulating reps model predicts that perfectly. It says mm -hmm. basically, you know, you start training with short rest periods, you're going to have a problem with the um, with the recruitment in the subsequent sets. You're going to start losing stimulating reps, and it's going to produce less hypertrophy than taking long rests, which is exactly what the literature is telling us. At the moment, you know, whereas a, for example, the three-part model, the metabolic stress, muscle damage, mechanical tension, doesn't predict that obviously. It kind of, maybe you can kind of bend it into shape so that it does, but it's difficult. It doesn't jump out at you really easily the way that it does from the stimulating rats model. So this is kind of starting. We're starting to see here how stimulating rats model is capable of explaining. You know the rep range problem it's capable of explaining the rest period problem you know i mean we can go on and, and explain a bunch more just by using variables. the two principles the just by using the this size, two the yeah. size principle and the force velocity relationship that's the yeah two I mean, actually i mean technically we could even include the length tension relationship in the mechanical tension thing and cover some some passive tension related issues like range yeah. of motion and stretch position exercise i mean it, it'll do all of that in fact it'll even do um you know kind of why different muscles grow after different exercises if we bring in the principle of neuromechanical matching i mean it's it's still doing the same job irrespective absolutely and then for the volume because that one never goes away we i think we've done we've done have we done one podcast on volume or two i was going to say we've done at least two <laughs> it feels like two, but it's a question every single day no matter how you phrase it no matter how clear you give the data it's a consistent question so one of the things that I don't think um, people realize is just how significant the nonlinear relationship is with volume. So if we go into the gym and we do a single set to failure, we're going to get a hypertrophy stimulus from that. Now, the magnitude of how long that lasts and the degree of it, right? So basically, but the magnitude of the time and then the magnitude of the kind of the peak amount 
um, of stimulus that we're going to get from it is less than we get if we do three sets. But the difference, so let's just do the one to two set model like you have here kind of laid out. So if you do one set to failure and you do a second set to failure, you don't get double the stimulus from the two sets. I think that's where the confusion lies with people. Absolutely. People think that they can do five sets and get five times as much hypertrophy as one set. And it's <laughs> absolutely impossible. You know, you're going to have to do six sets to double the hypertrophy that you get from one set. You know, it, it's and then after that, you're going to start plateauing. So the potential to create hypertrophy uh, with increasing volume is extraordinarily limited. Now, I'm not like a single set to failure guy at all. I think it's really difficult to make progress personally on that on that type of training. So I, I really don't like it. But um, I think ultimately, um, you know, we've got to get away from this idea that doing a billion sets in a workout is somehow helpful because once we you know, kind of start to look at the data and see that there's this hugely diminishing returns happening. It's clear that, you know, it makes no sense to do to do all those sets. And we can, what we actually want is as many first sets per week. Yeah, and I think when you say, I think we need to, to clarify this gets, sometimes I do one set, um, working set, but I do more than one exercise for that muscle group in the session. So I don't care if people, you like to use full body routines where you're training the muscle three times a week and you end up right there at about that nine sets in a week which the umbrella review that i sent you said we don't really see anything if you actually break down all these 1400 subjects over multiple meta-analysis anything more than 10 sets a week doesn't really it's, it's a point of diminishing returns right so somewhere and that fits in line with about that six sets for muscle in a session in my opinion because once you start using full body routines, you're dealing with a greater magnitude of um, fatigue overall that you that you did. Some of the studies, they just use single muscles. Right. So they're not training the, the full body. If you're training the full body in a week, I think that the number of sets to hit the plateau lessens because once you start training the full body, there's more fatigue you have to account for. Right. It's not done in isolation. Full body is always di more difficult to program. It's, it's really interesting, I think, that people tend to view three times a week full body as kind of like something that only beginners do. And, you know, right. we've all grown past that and we're far too sophisticated now to bother with things like that. It's actually the hardest program to write, I think. Um, it's really, really difficult because you really got all these moving parts and you've got to try and balance stuff between workouts so you're not losing muscle mass from an exercise you know that you're, you're basically you're not training a muscle enough uh, across the week because so much variation going on so i think that's actually really really difficult but i enjoy the challenge of writing those kind of programs just because it's difficult all right so if we're back to if we're double people thinking one set gives us a hypertrophy stimulus so two sets gives us double three sets gives us triple it's it's really more like if you think in terms of units right so if, if one set gives us 10 units now let's say we're fully recovered and one set gives us 10 units of stimulus. The best way I think you can explain this is, um, hold on. Do you want to put it on mute and I'll talk? It's Friday. The pool guy shows up. All right. So, um, if, if one set to failure gives us, uh, 10 units of hypertrophy, then a second set gives us maybe, would it even be half? It's not going to be far away from that because ultimately what you're looking for is a kind of, um, 
a diminishing returns taking you up to hit around about double at the, at the six set point. So ultimately, when we're getting from a single set to uh, six sets, we're aiming to achieve double the amount of hypertrophy, or we're aiming to model rather double the amount of hypertrophy that we're seeing, you know, with the one set. So ultimately, what the stimulating reps model is doing here is it's saying, as we experience some um, fatigue mechanisms going from set one to set two, set two to set three and onwards, then what's happening is we are reducing the recruitment by the development of supraspinal central nervous system fatigue, a little bit of spinal central nervous system fatigue as well. And we're reducing mechanical tension by the development of calcium ion related fatigue mechanisms. As those grow over time, you start to see smaller and smaller stimuli being generated, which is, you know, perfectly logical. And so stimulating reps model is really, really good because um, we're using two variables, recruitment and tension, and we're seeing reductions in both of those variables as a result of additional sets in the workout. In contrast, if you look at the um, kind of the three-part model of metabolic stress, muscle damage, and um, mechanical tension, it's like, well, you know, how is how is that changing? Because the reality is, as we increase the number of sets that we do, we're highly likely to be increasing the amount of muscle damage that we're creating with each additional set, because generally speaking, muscle damage increases, you know, not exponentially in the way that you might, you know, kind of think it's, it's increasing dramatically, but it does have a tendency to increase a great, to a greater extent with, with greater volumes. So um, ultimately, the muscle damage is actually increasing with, with the later sets in the workout. So does that then mean that the later sets are more stimulating? So in, it, what I'm comparing here is that the stimulating reps model immediately, the answer is jumping off the page at you because clearly we're reducing both recruitment and tension as we go from set to set to set. In the case of the three-part model, it's not doing that. It's not jumping off the page at you. It's actually, you're kind of like looking at it and going, well, what what is it telling me it's going to do? It's not really telling me anything. It, maybe there's some more metabolic stress. Maybe there isn't. There's definitely more muscle damage. Then maybe there's a little bit less mechanical tension. So does that mean that each set is equal? Well, that doesn't fit the data. The data tells us that they are diminishing returns, not equal sets. Um, so again, what we're seeing here is that the stimulating rich model is actually really, really clear in its prediction, and it's describing exactly what's happening. So here's kind of an interesting thing I've been shelling around in my head about the the plateau at six sets for muscle group in a session and the stimulating reps model. So let's say we're doing what we consider like perfect optimized training and we're taking, you know, three minutes rest. We're doing four or five reps um, uh, per set, zero to one RIR. So we're working in that, like what we consider that kind of optimal range where we're, we're getting the kind of the right number of simulating reps in the set. We're taking longer rest periods to reduce the amount of fatigue between sets. So the plateau, we kind of see pretty consistently across all of the longitudinal hypertrophy research. If, if, if we know that it's somewhere around six sets for a muscle in a session, by the time that we get to that six set, how many stimulating reps would you summarize that you think that we're getting by that point from that set? This doesn't have to be exact. We're just like brainstorming, shooting the shit here. So let's take the first set, for example. Let's say in the first set, we, we actually get the we get full. We'll do this along the model, right? So we get full, five full stimulating reps in the first set. So let's say we take a six rep max. We do five reps, leave one RIR. So we're reducing fatigue in the first set. We get, you know, five stimulating reps. The second set, we get, we're not going to get, we're going to get maybe three, right? 
Well, if you do it, the, I mean, the easiest mathematical way of doing this is just to say five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> right. That's what I was thinking, right? I was yeah, just wondering I mean, if that's what you were going to do. With that, it. That's not that's not anywhere near scientific, but just it's as not a really, scientific. Really I'm easy saying way of doing it. That's probably well, here's not wrong my point. It. Right here is my point, kind of about that was that if the plateau existed or somewhere around six, let's pretend that that seventh rep, that that point we're not getting motor unit recruitment anymore by any of the fibers that you know. There's a crossover effect where we're not getting full motor unit recruitment due to fatigue. We're not recruiting those fibers at the highest end that we normally can. And the subsequent sets are just increasing muscle damage. Now, that's what the DeMoss research really shows because they showed, hey, there wasn't any hypertrophy difference between eight sets and 12, 12. sets. Yeah. Yeah. And But the 12 sets, they saw the increase in myops, right? But it was all going to be contributed to muscle damage that was occurred over those sets. So clear from from the demos research alone we can see that doing more sets just increased muscle damage there wasn't an increase in hypertrophy response at all so there definitely comes a point where the fatigue becomes greater over the course of the workout when we look at the model right i always think of the 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 football shaped fatigue model right the one that you have where until we're looking at metabolite related fatigue that occurs very quickly and then we have other fatigue models like cytokines and we have you know other things that cause that that interference effect at the central nervous system level at the supraspinal level and then we have calcium iron related fatigue that kind of happens more slowly over the workout and is going to cause a reduction in mechanical tension and this is going to contribute more to the muscle damage that we're going to experience which also in turn reduces the amount of central nervous system fatigue that we're going to have in those subsequent workouts if it's significant what i'm kind of brainstorming there is there definitely comes a point and i wonder in my head i've thought about this recently like what's that crossover point where it's like we did another set and it literally is just 100 percent falls under the guidelines of junk volume it was just a set that increased more muscle damage and did not give us any stimulating reps so where what set does that happen on? <laughs> well, this is the volume. This is the volume question, isn't it? It's like how much volume are you going to be able to do meaningfully in a session? It, it's probably around that sort of seven, eight, nine um, set zone for a muscle group in a, in a workout. I mean, those are the kind of the sets where you would expect it to start basically doing nothing. Um, now, that you know fits relatively well with the very, very rough numbers that we've just been throwing around but um, ultimately the point is that it's a diminishing return situation the, prob the probability is that we're probably talking about fractions of a stimulating rep in those situations you know it's just not really noticeable it's not really worth talking about and that's what well that's something i was thinking about it's like how would you fit in like i, I think the, the incredibly nuanced version of the model would be to look at this the six sets right the six sets that hit the plateau of hypertrophy stimulus and then how many and so we know with the combination of of maximal motor unit recruitment and the force velocity relationship that's kind of where we're getting kind of the, the five reps right especially the motor unit recruitment and the slowing of involuntary slowing of contraction velocity so then I, I was thinking, I was like, okay, so in that second set, we know we're not, we're probably not getting five stimulating reps. It's probably four-ish, right? Or we could get five. Or it could be like the metabolite clearance thing. There comes a point where it's that just there's there's a drop-off in the next set that's more significant than the previous one. Yeah, I mean, it could be four and a half, you know, right. and, they, and then you see it drop down to three. And then, I mean, 
ultimately it's really really difficult to do this you know in, in kind of clean numbers because in, in sort of uh, discrete numbers because you know the chances are it's fractions of things and when you start getting into the seven eight nine sets it's probably fractions of a fraction you know so maybe there's a little bit there but honestly would we not be better spent you know spending our time doing something different rather than you know trying to eke out half a stimulating rep with something that creates an enormous amount of post-workout damage you know that's ultimately the, the cost benefit analysis that we're trying to trying to do here yeah and that's the that was why for me how that was weighing into the volume kind of equation conversation was that here's another good one and i'll, I'll bring this one into the volume discussion and i try to, to actually i do read the volume comments or questions that I get. And some of them I do think are, are decent, right? Um, one of them is if we're looking at around six sets um, in a session for a muscle group or somewhere around 10 sets a week maximally, what am I going to ask? <laughs> You're shaking. Magic, magical muscle math. I mean, I know on. it's not it's, magical muscle math. Here's 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 the one that, that I bring up because I just like to bring up what I wonder if there's a number of sets in the session itself where even if you're doing two muscle groups so now you see where i'm going with this so see that one probably makes more sense because even with you doing a full body routine whatever exercise you're doing first is going to have the most stimulus in the workout and whichever exercise you're doing last that muscle group is going to get the least stimulus comparatively to the others that's where i was going with that yes so i wonder then if a workout has a cap kind of a you know what i mean and I, and I would think that, okay, so now if we're, because we're different, we're, we're dealing with different nerve innervations too, right? But we're, we're dealing with the, the, the fatigue that's going on at the superspinal level. But then if we do a different muscle group that has different nerve innervations, we're not dealing with the same spinal level fatigue that we were dealing with. So then we would still potentially be able to get a little bit better motor unit recruitment than if we kept doing that same exercise or we kept doing something for that same muscle group. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's probably a, a much higher cap um, on on the total amount of, of 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 sets you can do across the whole body. I mean, doing a whole, a whole body workout, you can definitely do a lot more work than 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 just kind of hammering a couple of muscles in a single session. Um, I would say that's definitely true. I you do total of like twelve working sets, what you call working sets. In a yeah, about week, that. Yeah, about yeah. right, like two or three two or three sets. Yeah, four four exercises. I wouldn't want to do that across two muscle groups. Have you reduced it back to three exercises yet? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I'm generally doing four. Um, I, if I'm if I'm super what busy, if you go to five. Stuff, um, bad things happen if I go to five. The, unless the unless I literally unless I'm literally five. testing something. Unless I'm literally just testing something, which is not really a working set. Then it's just like I'm just seeing how this exercise feels. <laughs> I'm not actually doing something. <laughs> there's, so there's something, even with my groups, I love these the anecdotes too, at times. So even with my groups, everybody notices a difference when going to four exercises to five. You and I have talked about this for a yeah. few years now. Can't, I can't go to five, just like an impossibility. I don't know how people do five exercises in a session, but it's just, by the time I get done with my fourth, even at lower volumes, I'm just done. So mentally, I'm just done at that point. Now, I wonder if there there is, that's more relative to the release of the pro-inflammatory cytokines because there's just an abundance of those at that point by the time you've done four exercises and trained a lot of different muscle groups. And there's I think that, that's probably a fair assumption. 
Yeah. But again, I, just just to re reiterate what we're saying here, because we've started to drift into exercise order, which is another training variable. Yeah. And yet again, the stimulating reps model is capable of explaining exercise order. Yeah. So if we look at the stimulating reps model, it says we need high recruitment and high mechanical tension, either from the force velocity or length tension relationships. If we look at exercise order, we see that generally speaking, um, as we do um, more exercises in a workout, the ones that come later are, are less able to reach higher levels of, um, you know, um, higher numbers of repetitions uh, so for example we start dropping reps off our rep maxes that we would expect to be able to achieve if we'd done that exercise first is what we're saying yep. um, and that's because basically we are creating a cns fatigue effect from the earlier uh, sets which is occurring as we well know from the production of myokines in the muscle and that is detected by the brain producing supraspinal cns fatigue which is reducing recruitment and that means that our later sets are now um, not as stimulating as the earlier sets even though they're in completely different muscle groups and so the stimulating us model is explaining the exercise order effect again without even needing to you know, think about it, it's immediately jumping off the page at us and telling exactly what we're going to see. And that's exactly what we see. Whereas if you look at the, um, the three part model, for example, and I'm, I'm, I'm just to be clear, I'm not criticizing, I'm not criticizing the three part model in the sense that I'm singling it out and consistently. That's the only other one that exists. It's the only other one that exists, which is, which is good. So before the call, Paul and I were actually talking about the fact that we really appreciate the fact that people have actually gone to the trouble of, of constructing other models like the three-part model, which is great because it means that we can compare and contrast the model that we're promoting with other models. What we get very frustrated about, and certainly I find it extremely frustrating, is that there's a lot of people who want to be taken seriously as, you know, thought leaders in this space, but refuse to actually write a model down and, and, and say, this is how we think things work. They just want to say, this is what the research says. Well, no, that's not your job. <laughs> you know, tell us what it means. Um, you know, give us some context. Give us a model to work with that explains these results, you know, without needing to provide, you know, a billion different explanations for every single training variable. Give us something that explains all the training variables in a very, very simple package, which is what the model is. But anyway, the three-part model doesn't really give us very much to go on when we come to exercise order. How does the mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage tell us what's going to happen in the context of a, you know, exercise um, done well, last set, or an set, exercise set, done set, first. Sets to failure and then volume where it's taken well, to the same volume, volume is an interesting one because volume, it could argue te technically that you'd actually increase stimulus with later sets because muscle damage is much because greater. Because muscle damage would be greater. Set. Well, that's actually a really interesting point because if the, the, the three-pronged model worked, then we would all be out striving to increase muscle damage as much as possible. Because this is the whole point. Your model has to explain reality, and it doesn't. That model doesn't. Yeah, even in the – it's interesting now. It's it's weird how some things get traction, and then they later prove to be completely the opposite of what they're they're initially representing. Remember, it used to be that fatigue represented was – the more fatiguing something was that you did, the more adaptations that you would get from. This was the, the Kramer well, The more fatigue stuff, resistance so. adaptations you do get. I mean, that you is You do true. get fatigue resistance adaptations, but it used to be thought that this, the more fatigue something pr produced, the more hypertrophy it produced as well. There's a, actually a, an antagonistic uh, superset study that said, well, this one produced more fatigue, therefore it's better to use because it's produce more hypertrophy adaptations. But, I but you know why but you know why that. but you know why I think that is. I think that's because exercise science is founded on aerobic exercise science. 
And so people have naturally assumed that fatigue generates all adaptions when the reality is it only generates fatigue resistance adaptions. It gets people more capable of uh, resisting the fatigue that develops during a long bout. But fatigue resistance is a completely different kind of adaptation than the than hypertrophy adaptations. And those got conflated over the course of tons and tons of research. Well, if we create fatigue, then we're going to have adaptations that lead to hypertrophy, whereas you could have hypertrophy occur despite the fact that fatigue was occurring and fatigue adaptations were occurring. They were. It wasn't for a long time they were able to separate those out. So the if the three-pronged model approach worked, then there would be a multitude of other areas we see hypertrophy happening in, for example, anything that increased metabolite accumulation to significant degrees in the absence of mechanical tension, which we never saw happen. Well, this is this is the metabolic stress debate again, or the muscle yeah. damage debate again. I mean, these, these things, met, metabolite accumulation occurs during high-velocity work where we don't see hypertrophy happening. Muscle damage occurs during aerobic exercise. I mean, everybody knows if you've ever run a marathon or anything like that, you know you get a lot of muscle damage. You know, you don't get hypertrophy after that, that kind of training so ultimately no know, no no i heard a researcher say if you go do marathon running you'll get very sore and you'll get hypertrophy adaptations comparative to resistance training in the first few weeks of that yes i heard somebody said that okay <laughs> I, I, that's all i will really say in that situation i'm saying okay I, I'm not interested in. Yeah, I'm not okay. interested in that, that's what I, I heard when I, 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 heard, I heard this conversation that soreness happens, and then if somebody goes and they, they start running a marathon, they'll get hypertrophy adaptations that are comparable to resistance training adaptations in the first few weeks. I'm like, not. Yeah, if somebody's sedentary, have done no training at all, they will absolutely get some. This is back to the elderly, elderly person. It really is. It's back to the elderly person debate. Okay, we took somebody that's sedentary and they did some running and they got some hypertrophy adaptations. I absolutely agree. Like, is the person that's already been strength training going to get hypertrophy adaptations from that? No. Okay, that's how easy that one is squashed. So, like, so yeah, we've got volume, we've got exercise order, we've got you know loads of different training variables which we can easily explain in you know how they pan out in the literature by using the model that we're describing but let's let's move on to our possibly the most requested topic that we ever get we ever get um i i really now. honestly couldn't believe you you put this in there when i was I know. People think that the stimulating rest model is all about the force velocity relationship, and it's actually not because it's actually motor unit recruitment and mechanical tension. And you can get tension from the length tension relationship as well as from the force velocity relationship. That's where your so, total tension comes from. Exactly. And the really cool thing is that when we look at the when we look at the literature, what we see is that some studies show stretch mediated hypertrophy happening when you compare a stretch position or a four range of motion exercise with a, a contract position or a, a partial range of motion exercise. But not every single study does that. Now, basically, um, the the, um, the stimulating reps model says, well, look at what's creating tension and look to see if there's any tension differences between, for example, muscle groups. And immediately you get the answer because pretty much every single quadriceps study that's ever been done, with the exception of one, um, shows that you get uh, extra hypertrophy with the stretch positions or four inches of motion, whereas the ones that have been done in the biceps um, and the triceps don't show that. Now, we've talked about the exact problem with the biceps literature because if you look at the elbow flexors as a whole, there's, there's problems the, going on. The biceps drives me crazy because it, it presents us a neuromechanical matching 
issue that other people don't accept. It's that we're, we're loading the biceps where they have leverage, so they're going to grow best. It has nothing to do with them growing at stretch. They just happen to be in a fully extended elbow position when they have the best leverage up to around 90-ish, 70 to 90-ish degrees. So that's where they have the best leverage. Their length attention their length attention relationship doesn't dictate that they're going to grow great at quote-unquote longer muscle length. It's just that's where they have the best leverage. Exactly. And all of the biceps um, brachii studies bar one have basically been done without measuring the brachioradialis. So if you're going to test a muscle group and test how it behaves at different ranges of motion and neuromechanical matching tells you that one part of that muscle group is going to grow more at stretch position and one part of the group muscle group is going to train more at the contract position, what you can't do is then do a study and test the stretch position and only measure the muscle that grows better in the stretch position and then yes, test because of stretch. Yes, you can't do that. That's, yes. that's basically just you know, um, just ignoring a huge chunk of how physiology works. Uh, what we've got to do is actually measure the whole muscle. And the only study that's done that, I think, was the first one back in 2012, and it didn't really find any differences between ranges of motion, which is exactly what... Was that the one that the, did, um, they did the three site measurements we looked at a while back? I think it did. It did a it did a distal, um, middle, and then oh, now you've got me. I'm not. I'm not sure that. I, I think it probably. I think it probably did actually from memory, but I don't have that study uh, imprinted in my mind at the moment. I've said that over and over again with the bicep studies. I'm like, well, you have three elbow flexors. So if you're going to do a study where you measure loading different ranges of motion, then we actually need to measure all of those to see kind of what's happening there as you load them. So um, that's why those studies are so incomplete and people have run off um, with them. But to try to stick on point with the range of motion stuff. So, yeah, so, so when, we, when we use the stimulating rates model, we say, okay, well, you know, where is the tension coming from? Well, it's coming from titan, which is determined by sarcomere length. And sarcomere length is different in different muscle groups. And sarcomere length doesn't really get very far doesn't get stretched very far in some muscles and it does get stretched a very very long way in other muscles so tension is actually massively different depending on the muscle you're training and magically suddenly the answer jumps off the page at you because all of the quad studies are immediately showing well as i say with the exception of one immediately showing you that you've got a very very strong trend towards uh, stretch mediated hypertrophy occurring and the biceps and triceps studies are showing that that's not happening so ultimately um what we're, we're seeing is that the stimulating rates model is giving you a prediction and then you're actually then seeing that happening in the literature. How does the how does the uh, three-part model uh, give us, uh, you know, a prediction? Well, basically it would predict that you would get more damage occurring with the stretch position and you get more metabolite accumulation with the contract position. Generally speaking, um, most people tend to run with the idea that the muscle damage or did run back a few years ago until people start, started complaining about the fact that muscle damage probably isn't a mechanism for hypertrophy. But back when it was actually being actively used to explain <laughs> studies, it doesn't really get used anymore. People just kind of wave their hands in the air and go, well, we don't know what's happening. No, 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 no. They, they, they just kind of do that, that meme with the little, like the little black kid who's like looking at the camera, then away from it. I think it's, it's him. And then like now when you, they, they act like they never said it they just ignore that they ever said it they said it for a decade or longer and now they act like they never said it well really? I'm, I'm 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 definitely sure there's a lot of people who who used to argue that the stretch position and full range of motion exercises caused more hypertrophy because of the muscle damage that it was creating so but yeah, anyway it was, it, it was called three, it was called mechanical damage 
the three-part model absolutely has the potential for the contractor position to produce more hypertrophy because it will produce more metabolite accumulation, but also the stretch position could produce more muscle damage. So arguably, the three-part model is telling you that, you know, if, if this magical thing happens where every, uh, every kind of stimulus compensates for the absence of another stimulus, then, you know, like it does with rep ranges where you've got lower mechanical tension but more metabolite accumulation, then maybe what the uh, the three-part model is predicting is that you'll get basically um, the same hypertrophy from stretched and contract position, which is obviously not what we always see. But anyway, the, the point is that the answer does not jump off the page never, at you. I never thought about it that way. So the three-part model would explain if you ever got a short more out of position out of the more growth out of the short position, they go, oh, metabolic stress. And then exactly. if, you, if, you, if you ever got more growth out of the length, then they say, go, oh, more muscle damage. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought about it. But this is, the whole, this is the whole thing. When I see a model, this is what I do. I go, can this model explain rep range? Can it explain exercise order? Can it explain volume? Can it explain um, stretch position, four range of motion, um, strength training? Can it explain all of these training variables? Your model has so to be able funny. to do that. That's so funny. I never thought about the fact that they could just shrug their shoulders and use every different length imaginable and try to use metabolic stress or muscle damage to explain away in every study. They were like, well, this one showed more growth at a, at a, so this, wait, let me do this one real quick. So the difference in the, the squat and the hips, hip thrust. So they showed pretty much equal degrees of hypertrophy, except the hip thrust. So was you the, could argue, yes. You could you argue could. the hip thrust yeah. creates more metabolic stress and the squat yes. creates more, uh, more muscle. Magically, they somehow come somehow out Somehow come same. out exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my intention for this podcast was that people would be motivated to create uh, their own models of how hypertrophy worked, but I'm now starting to suspect that they'll be demotivated because... <laughs> They kind of know how much um, they will be subjected to um, investigation on the, uh, you know, whether their model actually stacks up or not. So our model includes the length of tension relationship, which is pretty much widely accepted throughout all physiology and has been for decades. Oh, yeah, the whole point about it is that the, the model is literally just using physiological concepts that you can find in the textbook. Yeah. It's literally just saying, you know, motor unit recruitment is necessary to apply, um, you know, the stimulus to a muscle fiber because that's how you activate it. And then um, mechanical tension is governed by the force, velocity, and length tension relationships. Well, you can literally pick up a textbook and it will have the force, velocity, and length tension relationships in there. You know, maybe not in the level of detail that we've talked about it, but certainly they'll be in there. So it's not something that is particularly contentious. Um, whereas, you know, when you're starting to go into a lot of the um, diatribes that you see online and people are coming up with all kinds of uh, strange and wonderful ideas, they're not rooted in the fundamental physiology that we would find in a, in a very simple physiology. And, and one of the ones that hurt us for a few years there was, just, was the, um, the people running around saying everything produces less force at shorter muscle lengths. And then if you look at the, the length of tension relationship, you're like, see that, that face? That, that, died, that died a very quiet death, that's didn't still, it? Yeah, because, um, but that was said. You remember when that was going around and you and I had a conversation, I th it was years ago, and I was like, well, everybody goes, well, muscles are shorter or weaker at muscle lengths. And I'm like, not all of them. There are plenty of muscles that are still capable of producing high degrees of force at short lengths. The triceps, fantastic. They just, just exist on the plateau. They can produce high degrees of force at short lengths. Let's let's talk about this a little bit, because just conceptually, because this is actually a really interesting thing that we've been talking about off, off, offline, really. But um, 
I'm starting to wonder whether, you know, collecting receipts from people is not such a bad idea because you're absolutely right that like a few years back, everybody was arguing something which is now largely accepted to be completely untrue. And we get very frustrated by people who, you know, they, they, they go through trends and they, everyone's suddenly arguing that this is true or that is true and that something other is true. You know, we've said recently in many, many occasions that we're going to really quite find it very funny watching everybody walk back. The walk, fact. That, walk all these back. We'll call this stretch media hypertrophy rubbish that they're currently that they're currently um, ranting about, and we're going to be sitting there in a couple of years' time going, "Yeah, we told you that this was the way it worked," and they're going to be frantically running around hiding the fact that they, or just ignoring the fact that they, they just um, no, they just no, 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 they just ignore it. the metabolic stress stuff. So that has Stu Phillips in his lab did three studies in a row. And they're like, bro, this doesn't do shit, okay? Let's just stop talking about this. And you know what the whole metabolite causes hypertrophy community? Nothing. They just sat in silence and acted like it never happened. They just move on. And now what they do is they move the goalpost. What's it called when presidential stuff, wagging the dog, wagging the Wagging the dog. Tail wags the dog, yeah. Wag the dog. So they wag the dog. So then they're like, okay, everything's grows better, longer links. We didn't talk about that metabolite stuff. We, we never, we didn't really. Just over here longer link stuff so we're going to create controversy with this longer link stuff so the metabolite stuff didn't pan out um Stu was always adamant about the fact that he's like it, it it was never really a theory and he literally said no serious researcher ever took that is you're laughing but what are, what i'm laughing because it's such a I savage have, thing to say what <laughs> i have learned the last few years especially like us working together and me actually having conversations with researchers there is a massive chasm between physiological researchers and the hypertrophy community massive what yes. the exercise science clown boys say and then what the, the researchers are doing every day and think is there's such a massive chasm there really is so the guys who are like the conversations that i've had with guys who are literally they spend their life working in sarcomerogenesis stuff they are confused at the conversations that are going on because when we talk about sarcomerogenesis or we talk about any of this kind of stuff, they're like, yes, that's the research. That's what we see day in and day out, whether we're doing animal studies or the, the, the magnitude of research that we have on people. They don't have these weird conversations. They're confused when you talk to them because they're like, why is, why is this? I don't understand what you're asking me. When you talk to the people who look at understanding internal leverages and moment arms, they don't understand these arguments that are going because they're like, well, why am I here actually doing this research? that I've been doing for like a decade or longer, if this isn't how this works, like they're really confused at the stuff. So the, it, there really is probably a need for keeping receipts on this stuff because a few years ago it was, everybody was talking about how you need to train everything at all these different links. Well, this trains this muscle at this link and this trains this muscle at that link. But when you looked at the length and tension relationship, what you have to ask yourself, is there even a need to train it at this length or does it produce force at this length or does it experience passive tension at this length? What are we doing with it? It changes because when you start to understand if the muscle cannot produce force at a shorter length, then it's not going to experience tension. That's what the, the hip thrust, I said forever and people will say, um, well, I feel my hamstrings in a hip thrust or a glute bridge. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, they're not going to grow there because that bent knee position means the hamstring are to be an active insufficiency, right? They're not going to produce any force. But then you're also looking at what's going on at that particular, those particular joint angles. And you're saying the hamstrings can't contribute in this position. Okay. Really clear and simple. So the model explains those outcomes before we even do the test, right? So it's like they go and they do the testing. I'm like, well, this is what that's going to show. 
I actually love that study for that, the hip thrust versus squat, because I'm like, it showed everything the model explains. It shows every, that study alone shows everything the model explains, the length of tension relationship, um, you know, neuromechanical matching neuromechanical matching like so it it explains everything and everybody else is out debating why this happened and they don't understand i'm like literally we've been talking about how why this the results of this study would be what it is so that was the forever it was these muscles like every muscle is weaker at a short position like the glutes are stronger at a short position and they can produce significant force because they even though I, we don't actually have the working sarcomere length of the glutes, but I, I can't imagine they'd ever exist on the ascending limb. Well, it, it, would, it would never make any sense for it to exist on the ascending limb because the, the moment arm is peaking in that point. So it's the muscles just simply always going to contribute to that position. It, is, it would be absolutely crazy. The same reason why the quadriceps are absolutely on the plateau in that contracted position. You know, and we know that for a fact. So ultimately you know comparing with the quadriceps it makes logical sense that it, it would function the same way yeah exactly and then the triceps the same thing right is is um the triceps we have a significant amount of data on and then they grew longer they grew more um in that mid-range to short triceps extension study and i'm like well of course they did because they're not going to experience any passive tension in that more flexed elbow position and then you're loading them at the mid-range where they have the greatest amount of, of cross bridging occurring because they're on the plateau. So I'm like, and then also that's a neuromechanical matching study in my opinion too, because you're loading the lateral medial head in that shoulder position where they're a little bit more favored. Um, and then you're overloading them there in the, um, um, at the near the end range of elbow extension. So all of those things, anytime you see that kind of stuff now, you're like, well, this explains it for these. It's very simple. Once you understand all of these concepts together, it's very simple. And ultimately, neuromechanical matching is just another modifier, the same way that fatigue is a modifier. So we talk about the two basic stimuli. Uh, well, sorry, that's not the right word. We talk about the two basic variables that matter for hypertrophy, which is recruitment and tension. You have to apply tension using recruitment. So the two things both matter. Neurochemical matching tells you where the central motor command is going to produce recruitment. So it's telling you which part of your body is going to experience the motor unit recruitment and therefore the tension during the exercise you're doing. So it's, it's basically giving you the answer to what does this exercise do for me? What, what muscle is this training? Now, the entirety of the fitness industry is made up of all kinds of weird and wonderful explanations of everybody's got a different idea of how you know this muscle makes this grow or that sorry this exercise makes that muscle grow or this exercise makes the other muscle grow or whatever and they all come out with weird and wonderful um, kind of descriptions of, of why that might be ultimately neuromechanical matching is telling you the answer you just have to look at the leverages and that will be the the muscle or the region the muscle whatever has the leverages and where the, where you're loading it because that's what is governing where the central motor, central motor command is doing if we didn't use neuromechanical matching we would be extraordinarily efficient and we would have been eaten by some kind of predator back in the day because ultimately we would have been all over the place when we were trying to run away because our body wouldn't have been coordinated it wouldn't have been capable of producing any force and we would just been lying on the ground being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger so it's obviously you know principle of neuromechanical matching is evolutionarily viable so that's why it works let me i want to include this i sent this to you this week for some reason i had missed over this in the ackland study where where Dave Ackland, who I've had conversations with, describes, he essentially describes neuromechanical matching in his moment arm research. 
and he says muscles with large moment arms have a greater mechanical advantage and potential to generate joint torque often functioning as prime movers while muscles with smaller moment arms tend to exhibit stabilizing functions such as intrinsic muscles um and then he goes on to reference the other studies that the point is he just described exactly what neuromechanical matching is in two sentences so if something has a large moment arm it has a greater mechanical advantage and basically the potential to generate joint torque a large joint torque and then that functions as the prime mover at that joint and it's obviously really the brain is going to do that it's going to send activation to whichever muscle has the best leverage because that's going to enable you to produce the highest exercise performance with the minimal energy input yes if you were if you were doing the opposite if you were sending activation more to muscles no that have bad leverage and <laughs> you would literally just sit there on the chair twitching you know you wouldn't actually be able to do anything it, the this is how silly people sound when they're trying to tell you that activation is going to other muscles that have poor leverage instead of the muscles that have best leverage. It just doesn't work like that. You it's know? the most, like when, when I heard that, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like why would the brain allocate sensory resources to a muscle with no leverage? It, it just, it, just, why would it do that? Think about it. They're contracting why would it do that? It would, it would be like if we were, if, if, um, I don't even know how to offer up another physiological example of how ridiculous it is. It's, uh, the body does everything, wants to be as efficient as possible for survival as it can, as you talked about. Yeah. So neuromechanical matching was discovered through respiratory research. So it says, oh, okay, so whatever respiratory muscles have the greatest leverage are the ones that the, the brain allocates motor unit recruitment for. And it goes, oh, okay, I bet everything works like this. And then they look at it and go, oh, okay, it really does. And we have people out there now arguing and that's why when I've had conversations with Acklin, he's like, he's just confused because he's like, I don't understand how this is a, like a discussion. It's really not. <laughs> no, it's and, really and people, not. people want to be taken seriously, but they don't actually go through this thought process. And then they wonder why we don't want to engage with them. Well, the thing is, is people have asked me, like, why we don't do debate. And I'm like, I don't know how I can have debate with people who either don't understand these concepts or just outright deny them. Like, how do you have a conversation or a quote-unquote quote debate with somebody who either doesn't understand these concepts or, or denies them and says that there's quote-unquote like limitations with neuromechanical matching? I'm like, well, what limitations are What there? limitations? I don't I understand mean, what the limitation is. They say, well, the authors say there's limitations. Well, every author says there are limitations and every author calls for more research. Guess why? It's because that's their job. They want to do more research in that area, so they want to get funding, so they want to represent the fact that there's more work to do. Everybody does that. <laughs> everybody does that. That's just what everybody says because they want more funding. That's how it works. So, I, quote unquote, science can never comes to conclusions by some of these people, and they're like, "We just they would be out of a job if it came to." They're like, "We're like, we need more research." I'm like, "Bro, we've been researching Titan since 1951. How? Like, we don't like we probably don't need any more research on it. Like, we have a lot. Like, we have a lot. Some of these concepts, when you, when you would give them to me, or I would go, I would start looking at 
other things to do with these. I'm like, these are studies in the 50s, 60s, 70s. The problem is not, the problem is not that we don't have enough data. The problem is that people aren't reading the data that exists. Great example, sarcomerogenesis literature. We start talking about stretch mediated hypertrophy and suddenly out of the woodwork come crawling all of these people who say, no, you can't include all of those studies. You've literally just got to talk about these human strength training studies, which have compared long versus short muscle positions. And I'm like, no, we're going to refer to every single stretch mediated hypertrophy study that's ever been done, and we're going to look at the entire that also goes back to the seventies. And we're going to put everything in context and understand how this works physiologically, because we're not idiots. Because we want to actually understand everything. We don't want to just pick a tiny little area of research that you've done your PhD in because you think that's important. We actually want to look at the entirety of the literature. We don't want to limit ourselves to something that's very, very minor in importance for the understanding of this particular concept. Yeah, that's the... Until people actually start actually looking at the physiological research that's kind of disconnected from the exercise science world. I don't agree with that exercise science designation because this is all exercise science. When I say exercise science, I am talking about the hive mind, the clown world. It's the hypertrophy research group, really, is what you referred to earlier. It's It's the people who are basically looking at hypertrophy research and they're excluding anything that isn't from their particular preferred group of studies. Preferred group of studies. It's, it's yeah, said, preferred group of studies. It's like uh, keeping the receipts comes that, back to, well, here's the thing that brings us back to keeping the receipts. So once, once this stuff comes to more light, and I would say you and I have actually done the best job of bringing a lot of these fallacies to light over the last few years, is once this stuff comes you, to light, <laughs> say what? Mainly you. I just sit here, you know, making infographics. You make infographics, and then I'm the one that goes, hey, guys, this is bullshit. And then so... <laughs> so this and then we have to do well, a podcast about it. Yeah, then we have podcasts about it. And I, I mean, I really do. I, I don't really have a problem now with keeping your receipts and actually at the point where because they keep saying you and I are just that we've either cherry picked studies, which is odd. It's the opposite way around. <laughs> it's literally the opposite. They they're the one that's cherry picked the studies. I'm like, you guys are ignoring this whole mountain of data that is contrary to what you keep claiming. So and that we created a model and then tried to make it fit everything when it's all the data actually the data itself that existed created the model that's the part that i also need to emphasize because we're doing the model in this episode. you always fit models you take data and you fit models that's yes. what this stimulating rest model does it fits the data that we've got and then you wait for new studies to come out and you see if those new studies still fit the exact same model that you've created you test the model this model has been existing for like the last you know, seven or eight years, and every time a new study comes out, it pretty much fits perfectly. Hey, hey, you know which one really I really like lately that they try to use it as a like to detract from the model was the one where they did um, uh, the um, ultrasound and it was versus the biopsy for fascicle length measurements, and they found that there was a five percent difference in length. And I'm like, ooh, we already said there'll be a margin for error. Like 
there's always a margin. That's not the point. And the study, because you sent me the study. Here's how wide the, the weirdness is, or the, the gap is. You sent me the study and said, look, this is really cool. I'm like, oh, they found, sarcom they found sarcomerogenesis and fast-length increasements, whether they looked at it in ultrasound or whether they did it on the biopsy. They just found there was a little margin of error and the difference in the two. Do you know what everybody else said who, like, opposed? They, they said, see, you can't use it. I'm like, what? That's not what it that's not what it shows it shows it occurs it's just that the measurements have a margin for error how was that missed i'm like did it show the fascicle length increases yes did it show like sarcomeogenesis yes. happened yes did it show the fascicle length increase due to sarcomeogenesis yes did it show that there was like a slight margin for error between the, the two measuring um methods yes, yes. it Is did that not a problem? yeah no. that, i'm like okay <laughs> like that's we agree that there will be that there will be a difference when you're looking at different like the difference in somebody actually going through and counting the sarcomeres and the difference between somebody using a, a um, ultrasound. Yes, there will be a difference. I, I don't. I didn't understand what the problem was. They tried to use it as a see. You can't use fascicle link measurements as a proxy for stretch media hypertrophy. Well, like that. You know, that's, that's not what that study yeah. showed. That isn't no, what that not. study showed. It's not. No, it's not. It just showed that there was a slight margin for error between measuring differences. Physiology is messy. You're never going to see everything lining up perfectly anyway. It but... wouldn't line up perfect. There would be a margin for any of this. A 5% margin of error difference is 5%. That's what you're squabbling about? A 5% difference. Anyway. Okay. That was my, my rant on that. Okay. So the last one here. And... Um, I've I mean, been asked about this one a lot lately with concurrent exercise stuff. We haven't really talked about it that much, but no. basically concurrent aerobic exercise can impair hypertrophy caused by strength training, but typically only if done immediately before um, or in very high volumes. So for some, whatever reason, when you sent me this one, I thought it was odd the timing because for, for some reason I've been asked that a lot lately about cardio. Have you gotten that question a lot lately about cardio? Not really, no. But it okay. is something that uh, does come up um, periodically. Uh, it's just really interesting because when when the concurrent training effect was observed, um, the researchers who were using the three-part model had to basically create a completely, or other researchers, had to complete a completely different set of explanations for why it might happen. There's no way you can take the three-part model of metabolic stress, muscle damage, and mechanical tension. So here, this is why we would expect concurrent training to cause a problem for your strength training workouts. Your aerobic exercise is creating a, an interference effect for your strength training workouts. We've got to invent, we've got to devise a separate molecular mechanism for you know why that might be the case. Whereas the stimulating reps model literally just looks at it and goes, well, you're creating and muscle damage during aerobic exercise, which is going to produce an inflammatory response that's going to create CNS fatigue, and you're going to have reduced recruitment and reduced tension in the trained muscles. And that's going to create a problem for you when you try and do the workout and create hypertrophy. So it jumps straight off the page at you and, and, and says, this is what we're going to see. And the more volume you do of your aerobic exercise, the bigger a problem it's going to be. And if you do the exercise immediately before your strength training workout, then it's also going to be a problem. So it literally jumps straight off the page at you and tells you what the answer is going to be without even needing to think whereas the three-part model didn't even have the possibility of telling you what was happening you needed to actually look for a separate explanation which is what became the interference effect and we wasted about 30 years of research time and effort on something that was never actually a thing because people thought that the aerobic exercise signaling processes interfered with the strength training signaling processes that 
is now obviously now not a thing um, and we have to kind of look for something different whereas the stimulating rats model gave us the answer straight away so it's very frustrating when you've got a model this powerful that will literally explain all of your training variables and you've got people who are um, basically criticizing little bits of it here and there which is fine you know and you know it's interesting and we what Paul was saying earlier when we are presented with some data that threatens parts of the model or appears to threaten parts of the model we spend time going up and down it best part of two weeks of my life going up and down the proximity <laughs> failure studies um and i was going up and down, and down it too. you just kept beating, you kept beating me to it but we we ended up at the exact same place on it anyway that was a pretty funny thing you were like well because well, when i first sent it to you i was like bro it's, it's just elderly untrained people like yeah. when you go through these you're going to find out it's five to six um but back so to the current, back ultimately, to the, the thing is, the stimulating rest model is extraordinarily capable with just two variables. It's extraordinarily capable of explaining everything just by referencing physiology. So physiological concepts like fatigue, like um, neuromechanical matching, and all of the basic stuff like size principle, force velocity, tank, length tension. And immediately you get the answers for what your training variables are are going to tell you or what they're going to do when you test them in, in the literature if you try if you try and do that from the three-part model you'll get nothing you'll get you'll get almost nowhere you'll get confusion you'll get, you'll get that. confusion and you'll, you'll get nothing you'll definitely get confusion you'll get no predictability so ultimately what i'm saying is you know and a lot of people recently have been complaining that i don't take them seriously that i don't pay attention to them that i don't give them you know um the, the props that they think <laughs> I they know where that comes from the props that they think they they, they deserve I think the exact if you want quote, me to take you seriously build a model build yep. a model that explains this stuff and write it down and show us why it's at least as good as the stimulator. That was my favorite comment of the last two two weeks was Chris acts like we don't exist. I died laughing so hard at that. Well, as far as I'm concerned, they don't. Because until somebody's got a model that is better than the one that I've got, I'm not interested. You know, please come and criticize various bits of the model that we've got going. Make it better. That's cool. I don't mind that. But if you promoting a completely different approach if you're promoting something completely different in, in its entirety have a model don't just okay, have opinions so wait, have hold on hold on hold on because that's a really important thing that you just said because you and i have had this conversation a million times if anything helps make the model more complete we're 100 percent for it. To it yeah it, we we've said a million times if somebody shows up with bicep research that shows fascicle increases we'll go hey like we were like there's Clearly, that we have we have stretch mediated hypertrophy occurring in the biceps, um, but we don't have that data right now. And the length tension relationship shows that the biceps probably don't experience stretch mediated hypertrophy. If they do, it would be in very tiny amounts because it's like right on the teetering edge of the descending limb. Right. Speaking on the same on the same topic, if somebody wants to figure out what the hell is going on with the calf muscles, then please do tell us because and we're we really have said openly. Okay, we don't know. We said Our muscles really don't fit our model. So if you want to start with something that will give you, you know, a, a better. All you're going to do is help us complete it if you figured that out. Well, possibly. But ultimately, if you think things work in a completely different way from the way we've explained it, then start with the calves. And if you can find something that works better, then so go for it. we openly state that our model does not explain what's going on with the calves. It doesn't. It no. doesn't. I, I, I asked you that, I don't know how many times, how long ago, when I looked at everything and I, I just hit you up randomly. I said, what the hell is going on with the calves? And you didn't say anything for a long time. And you finally go, I don't know. And that was really funny to me because I was like, 
anytime I look at something, I get confused. I wonder if I'm missing something. And if I ask you now, 9.9 out of 10 times, you'll go, I, I don't know what's happening there. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I feel better. But getting back to the, the other point that you just made there, the model is 100% flexible to be moved, changed, made bare, better, refined. When When a bunch of people started saying that the um, the meta-analysis and regression on training to failure showed that the effective reps model was wrong. I Finally, I got you to wake up. So I was like, look, we need to go over this data and look, and, and, and we need to pour over all of it. <laughs> you curl your eyes, but we have a definitive answer now, right? And the definitive answer is that it, on, over the course of your lifespan, it's about five reps. It's about over the course of your training life, it's going to be about five reps. And then anything. But I just like to reiterate the fact that the, the model is not five reps. The model is high recruitment and high tension. Yes. Um, if that happens at five reps, that's five reps. If it happens at six, that's six. If it happens at four, that's four. The point is that um, yes, we want to get accurate numbers, but ultimately the model is about high recruitment and high model, tension. Model. That's again. I have to reiterate that the only reason why I said five reps is just when we broke down the data. It just it happened to be right around five reps for an average. That's, but the, the yeah, model is actually a couple of principles, and that's something lost. And I've had to reiterate to people, and they'll say, But you and Chris have five reps. I'm like, No. It's... But that's the difference because what we are doing here is promoting a model, and what a lot of other people are doing is simply promoting their opinions and ideas about random things. No, that things. comes back to the fact that most people can't get their head around two cocktails <laughs> at the same time. You're never going to let me forget that, are you? <laughs> Because if you give them a number, they just stick to that. They just say, you guys said this number. If we ever say a number earlier, know, know, somebody's going to say, you Numbers said something about 15 to 16 reps. Watch. You just wait. Somebody's Magical threshold where recruitment increases stop happening. Yes. And somebody will say that we said this about this number, that about that number. When I'm like, okay, what principle are we talking about here? But back to the concurrent, concurrent stuff, somebody's going to ask, say, they say, you and Chris said this and that. Is do you feel like, and I know the answer to this, do you feel like there's, if you're doing cardio prior to lifting, which anecdotally you can walk in and test that out for yourself and you can see if you do half an hour of cardio prior to your lifting, your lifting's going to suck. So what about the intensity and duration of the cardio? Like, Well, that, yeah, I mean, doing increasing intensity, increasing the duration, both of those are going to make the workout less effective. But ultimately it's about timing more than anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, I think... If you're doing, if you want to combine both aerobic exercise and strength training into a week, then ideally, I mean, ideally, you would do the aerobic exercise after your strength training workout. But I've never found that to be particularly feasible. I just hate it too much. Um, doing it, it is horrible. Doing it at the opposite end of the day is feasible, but again, I don't like going to the gym twice in the same day. Um, doing it on alternate days, I think, is probably the least worst option just in terms of balancing practicalities and um and physiology because ultimately what we're trying to do is put it as far away from the next strength training workout as we can which would obviously be immediately post strength training workout but yep, nobody's yep. going to do that unless they're a complete you know total dedicated athlete but um doing it on alternate days i think isn't isn't perfect from a physiological point of view but it's probably about as good a balance between practicalities and and reality as we're going to get for most people and that's that's what i do how do you feel about the in interval training stuff? Remember for years, that was another one. You could have kept receipts on that, the whole EPOC, excess post-oxygen consumption, where there's a homeostasis effect of 
metabolism increase due to a lack of oxygen due to anaerobic training exercise bouts right like that was the thing the epoch effect was vastly overrated that was another thing i never did body comp stuff so i'm not really um okay so well let's talk about the interference effects relative to the intensity and duration of cardio stuff if you go out and run do a run i I generally advise people in my groups that they're doing running just definitely don't do your running prior to your lifting stuff. Uh, the best solution to that is to do it on your non-training days. But I also think it, it's going to be any type of anything related to like marathon running or, or you know, 5K stuff is going to have a hindrance effect uh, on your uh, hypertrophy training. Yeah, I mean, the problem with running, of course, is that it produces a lot of eccentric contractions. So you're getting a lot of muscle damage, irrespective of whether you do long, slow stuff or whether you do uh, high intensity stuff. Looking at cycling or cross trainer type type work, type work or rowing, for example, generally speaking with that, you're not using as high levels of motor unit recruitment unless you do more intense work. So Broadly speaking, with the with the less um, kind of with 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 aerobic exercise that doesn't have eccentric contractions, or obviously it does, but it doesn't have you know kind of uh, pronounced eccentric contractions, then you you only really going to have a problem if you're going higher intensity. So if you're going for like an hour long cycle ride, and I I speak from very long experience in this matter, if you're going for an hour long cycle ride a couple of times a week on your non lifting days, that isn't going to do anything to your lifting at all if you're used to it. Um, whereas you probably going to find a bit of an issue if you're doing long runs what about um low to moderate intensity steady state stuff like just like a a nice brisk walk for 30 minutes oh yeah that's not even going to register for most people i want to so when you're talking about concurrent training you're you're literally talking about like endurance style work yeah, I mean, I, I, I literally yeah. did this for like 15 years. I mean, I would do three strength training workouts a week and I'd be riding every other day. Um, so how, long, how long were you riding for? Anything up to 100 miles. Wow, okay. Yeah, so yeah, a lot. Yeah. No, I, I, I know my stuff when it comes to aerobic exercise as well. I just don't talk about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've like just like briefly talked about this stuff. I just didn't know you were riding that much. That's a lot. Yeah, I, I was, well, just growing up in that part of um, England is extremely popular to do a lot of road cycling. So I ended up doing that. So you eventually dropped that? Well, I, when I moved abroad, I stopped doing that. Did you notice a change in your training no. productivity at all? No. So you had all, you, because your VO2 max levels were already up high and you already created all the adaptations and all that kind of stuff. Well, you're just not creating a lot of muscle damage because you're just, well, cycling, you're just spinning along at a low level of, of yep. I mean, it's higher than walking, but it's not, it's not high enough to create motor unit recruitment that's going to cause damage to fast-reach fibers. So you're just not going to see anything happening. Yeah, and even if you're going up a hill, you're looking at concentric contractions. When you get into road cycling, you start to learn how to go up hills without, you know, kind of giving too much effort. Burning yourself out, yeah. <laughs> I remember this uh, this one thing about Lance Armstrong made me think about when he had the, um, you know, the testicular cancer. You remember all that? And sure. he would do he because of the treatments he was getting, like his crotch was super like swollen and painful, right? He couldn't sit down on the bike, so he did all of his training basically in that standing position. 
that is badass, bro. Do you know what? There like, are people out there, you know, obviously like Lance, like, you know, David Goggins is very famous for, for this as well. There are just people out there who've got a mental uh, kind of mindset, which is just different. It's just next level, man. It's, it's just next level. Orders of magnitude higher than, higher than what I can do, definitely. So for the average guy, though, and I've made this point many times clearly, if he's going to go do Ironman, triathlon, like very long distance stuff, probably is going to cause a detriment in terms of maxing out his hypertrophy potential. There's a reason why you don't tend to see mega jack guys doing like endurance stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately a couple of a couple of hour long cycle rides a week is not going to do anything if you're used to it um you know obviously you know in my case i'd been doing it a very long time and i built up to just the one long ride at weekends and that you know that big of a deal yeah took a rest after that but you know ultimately if you if you kind of want to do a lot of aerobic exercise then it will it will cause a problem for your for your hypertrophy i think but well, i would say it's it's about getting used to it it's definitely about um, so, I mean, I, I think if you jump in and start doing a few hours of aerobic exercise a week and you've not been doing anything prior to that, then yeah. you are going to cause issues. So what's the, your lowdown on concurrent training is, um, definitely avoid it before your training session. If you're going to do it, do it maybe a few hours after I, I generally do like just low or moderate intensity, like walking in the morning. And like for 30 minutes, I never had any effect. Yeah, I don't think it would have any effect at all. Well, I wouldn't um, even know if I'd call it long, low intensity. My walking is more like power walking. Because okay. I can't, can't stand to walk slow. But I have no problems. So, yeah, I, I think ultimately it's, it's, it's a matter of degree. If you're doing a lot of high intensity stuff, um, like intervals, if you're doing a, a huge amount of, of um, low intensity stuff, then both of those are going to cause issues. If you're doing them before a strength training workout, then that's really going to cause issues. Um, if you're doing like an hour of low intensity cardio on your off days from strength training, I really can't see that making much of a difference at all. Yeah, I think that that comes back to a, a lot of things, right? It's going to be the intensity and duration that you're looking yeah, at there. Definitely. So that's going to create... Uh, if you have high intensity and high um, duration, going to be pretty bad. Um, even if you have moderate intensity and high. so, basically, it's going to come back really to if you're doing a lot of any of that kind of stuff, it's going to cause um, basically a fatigue interference effect. Yeah, duration, intensity, and and location within the training week. Those are the three things that are going to matter. Okay. Just an interesting side point on this is that. The overreaching problem is also explainable by the stimulating rest model in exactly the same way that concurrent training is explainable by the stimulating rest model. And overreaching is really interesting because you can get non-functional overreaching as well as functional overreaching. So functional overreaching is where you, you, you are doing a block of training. You start to notice that your strength is declining, your performance is dropping off. But when you take a, a, a deload, um, you then find, or a taper, you then find that the performance springs back up and you're actually better than you were at baseline. Non-functional overreaching is where you do that and the new load doesn't help and you're still actually in a state where you've either not improved at all due to the training program or you've actually just got worse still. The stimulating rest model basically says that if you're creating so much muscle damage that you're producing muscle damage that lasts from one workout to the next, that's yep. reducing tension. And if you're producing that damage, you're going to be producing an inflammation response, which produces superspinal fatigue, which is going to reduce recruitment. If you do that 
in a serious enough way that produces an enormous amount of that, it's going to accumulate over your program and you're going to basically end up doing a load of work that doesn't actually stimulate any hypertrophy. So stimulating action model literally tells you exactly what's going to happen if you do a really muscle damaging block of training and you find that that doesn't then help you, you know, achieve your hypertrophy goals. Well, that's why it's happening. Whereas the three-part model doesn't give you any clue whatsoever because I, told, it's like, well, I said earlier it get, does give you something it gives you a lot muscle of damage the more muscle damage you create the more hypertrophy you should create so you should be able to actually end up in a situation where you're better off than you would be if you'd not done muscle damaging exercise wait 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 here's here's just another very clean easy way to understand that the muscle damage was never a factor um if the muscle damage created any type of additive effect, you'd have to make up for it some way. We wouldn't see a plateau in volumes. So because we see a plateau in volumes, we have to understand like there's no way that the muscle damaging effect creates any type of additive hypertrophy effect or adaptation because it would have to make up for that deficit in some way. Yeah, because the muscle damage is actually increasing with increasing numbers of sets, not just linearly, but actually exponentially. So because the more you train a muscle in the fatigue state, the even more damage it's going to experience. So, yeah, I mean, it would it would predict that the later sets in a workout would actually be really stimulating. Yeah, and you would it, somehow that would make up for the lack of motor unit recruitment. Somehow that would make up um, for lack of being able to get mechanical tension on those those larger fibers. They, they, it would, would have to make up for something. That. You would predict right. that, yeah. You would predict yeah. that it has to. And then we would have to define the magnitude of that somehow. And yet somehow in all of the hypertrophy research, the, the ref ranges all end up showing very similar degrees. But again, that comes back to... Um, the stimulating rest model explains all the training variables and it does it really, really well. And it gives us really good predictions about what we're going to see happening when new studies come out. And it's just based on really fundamental physiology that's been around for a very, very long time. You know, we don't need a hundred new studies in all these new areas that people are, you know, proposing we need. Somebody, we I think it was... need to read the literature. Somebody, I think it was Nick, sent me one. We like Nick. Nick's our boy. We love Nick. Nick sent me one. He goes, this is a, he goes, it was a brand new study and he sent it to me. He goes, interesting. And it was just another reference study. I go, not really. And I love Nick, but I was like, Dude, it just affirms what we already. We don't really need any new research in that area. I feel like that one's one people ask me all the time. What would you like to see a study in? One thing we don't need to see is longitudinal hypertrophy and rep range of studies. We don't need to see that. We need pec studies, right? They're out there, bro. You, it was. You know what? You. No, we need a moment on. We need a moment on pec study for we, the three different Google regions. Study, three different the, regions. Look at the pecs, but we, need we three do need. Regions. Yeah, when I talked to Acklin, he's like, we, we don't have one for the transverse plane. We don't really we need three regions in the transverse plane is what we need. Yes. Really, really need that because I keep talking about it on my mentorship course. And I'm like, what I do not know is which of the three regions of the PEX is working more in the transverse plane. Because they all do adduction. But how much more does one region do than another or, or are they very 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 easily balanced between the three regions i just don't know the kukla study didn't it didn't look at the regions it no. just it just looked at yeah. the 
because they used a line of action with excursions. Yes. So they just, which looked. is really messy when you're doing um, a muscle. I tried to complex. explain this to somebody the other day. They even, there's a whole study that talks about how it's, it's, it's erroneous to use those because there's a multitude of problems. When you have a line of action for the muscle with multiple attachment sites, it, it's, you can't really, it's, it's like, you can't. Where are you drawing the line from? It, it it's just it doesn't. The work only like one that. that's really kind of okay for is the delts because you're you're dealing with one origin, one insertion, like just one to one attachment points. You can get a pretty good idea with delts, but for the other ones, when you have multipinnate muscles that are deforming upon stretch and contraction, and then you have multiple attachment sites, drawing a line of action is not going to give you an a a. a, a it's not, there's going to be a multitude of problems with trying to figure out leverages using that particular method. So we don't have anything through the transverse plane. We should do a whole podcast on, uh, I could ask that a lot, what studies would you like to see? Because I think it's obvious at this point that there's researchers out there that have gone through our stuff because they do follow us. And they've done some studies in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think moment, moment arm data researchers probably aren't listening to our podcast, though. It's a little Aww. bit of a specialized area. You know, I, I want think to you... start emailing Acklin and tell him, do, what do we need to do to get him funded to do another really good uh, moment arm stuff through the tra- – is it just the transverse? I think it's just transverse plane we really are lacking. He acknowledged that in the study that he did. We don't have anything for the tra- – they didn't do transverse plane for some reason in that study. Ask him to cost it up. See what see what it would take. Yeah, that would be really. If we had the transverse plane data, just have a number. Uh, what would you want? The pecs and the traps. I would be really interested to know what the leverage looks like. Delts. Leverages look like for the traps, um, but ultimately, um, what we want to do is, is 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 ask the question: How would this change training? If you know the answer, I mean that's what I always start with: is is how would this train change your training program if you knew the answer to this question? I think the pecs is one of the really really obvious ones where it would immediately change training because if you find that one of the regions of the pecs is way way more um, active during a uh, transverse plane movement, you're immediately changing the way your training program is panning out. Yeah. That would, I could make some hypothesis there because the the different regions of the pecs don't all have the same length of tension relationship either. If I remember correctly, the clavicular. If we, if we work on the very tenuous principle that length tension plateaus tend to this is not to be taken to the bank. This is just our our very very rough and ready assumptions that we kind of like test occasionally. Uh, very very often, length tension plateaus will tend to track. And um, ten, what's interesting, and I brought, these, brought that up to you about the anterior delts with the clavicular pecs, is that their length of tension relationships tend to complement each other with their leverages, too. So if I just went off kind of a, the overall broad spectrum of what we see, is that you would tend to see, I think that it might be something like there's similar leverages with the pec divisions at longer muscle lengths, and then maybe something like the clavicular pecs tend to, to lose leverage as you get into more adductive position um, in the transverse plane as you tend to begin to bring the arms closer to the midline of the body. So it would look more like the hamstrings in, in knee flexion rather than the hamstrings yeah, in knee flexion. Yeah, so, that would be a really yeah, good one, so yeah. You, 
Yeah, so you'd see you'd see very similar at one end and and tailing off at the other end and varying yeah. at the other end. Because Whereas, what is, the, the the media, the semitendinosus, and especially the yeah, the semitendinosus tend to have a really good moment arm throughout the entire knee flexion angle. But I think it was that the is that the long head of the biceps uh, for Morris tends to drop off um, as you is, get. Is, there's, there's t there's, they're quite close together at one end, and they they vary at the other end. That's the, the, other that's end. the example of the term. Oh, Whereas if you look at hip extension, they're all very very similar as, oh, as hip extension. Oh, but that's interesting too because of their length of tension relationships too, right? This, where the the semitendinosus tends to have it runs all the way from that. The, the data on the data on the length of tension relationship of the individual hamstrings is really weak, in my opinion. It's it's based on a, a very 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 um, approximate model. Whereas uh, what we normally use for re referencing stretch mediated hypertrophy in the hamstrings is just the uh, the fact that they do grow it um they do grow with seated leg curls versus um lying leg curls so uh, that's generally what we we use as, as the, the justification for for that so we need we need moment arms data for really for the pecs and the transverse plane and really um well the kukul looks at the delts so i i feel okay about the the delts um in that one because in um if you cross-reference the the lateral delt with the one Acklin, they they're almost identical. They look really similar uh, between those two. I, I think the delts for using a line of action because you're just kind of dealing with two attachment points. Well, if if somebody's going to do a pec study on the transverse plane, they're probably going to do the anterior delt at the same time because they're going to have yep. the the structures in place and to the measure both of those delt, things. Right, like the posterior. And if they go in the opposite delt, direction, yep. then they can do the posterior delt and whatever else, but. Just so what do you what do you think? So what do you think we'd find? I don't know. That's why I would want to see the study because generally speaking, I, I I'm pretty happy with the way most stuff pans out. I'm pretty um, confident. I've I've kind of got enough data to have a really educated guess at most things. But um, the, uh, the 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 pec moment on data from the transverse plane is a really obvious one. I would like to see some moment on data calculated for the, the calf muscles. I'd really like to see that done properly. Don't we have one that shows the, the gastroc in the extended knee position and dorsiflexion that the gastroc has way better leverage than the soleus? There's a rough and ready calculation in the discussion section of a paper that's done that. Um, so they took some measurements and they, they threw some numbers into, you know, a, a, a kind of a text block in the discussion section but i don't think anybody's actually done a paper measuring it um so that would be that would be a really interesting one to see um i think that's the one i'm quoting yeah i mean and of course there's the landing paper on the on the, well, the gastrox doing at the knee i mean repeating the landing paper on what the, i think it's the landing paper on what the gastrox doing at the um, ankle would be really interesting Maybe that's where we're missing it. Maybe it's something that's going on at that, at that ankle. So I would say pecs and, pecs and, and, and calves are pecs probably and the two places. Pecs and to... calves. The more data we can get on the calves, the, the better. But I really think that the calves are going to have something in there that the model already kicks on that we're just missing. There's... The calves are really interesting because they have the same Achilles tendon. They all go through the Achilles tendon, but yep. they actually have this weird um, kind of, they each have their own tendon before you get to the Achilles tendon. So that's that's odd. So you've got this very independent function, but you're still relying on a single tendon. Yeah, because they're coming off the medial and lateral heads are coming off two different origin points. 
So they're all kind of yeah, coming all together kind of and intertwine yes. with each other. So you've yeah. got some intertwining activities, but not not necessarily. Um, but it, it's the outlier. If the calves, if the if you had ever sent me a paper where the calves were like from the plateau that are deep on the descending limb, that would be the discussion would be over. Yeah, but it they would be. literally have the only. There's two different papers now that look at the calves and both found them. Now, there was variances in the working sarcomere links, even in those two papers from individual to individual. I just wonder, yeah, because there were too many, <laughs> it's doing a thing. We're not going to get an answer I now. Because I just wondered, like, there were so many people where it only existed on the ascending limb. That's the only muscle we've ever seen that on. I know, it's I the know. only one. Yes. Which, that presents a multitude of problems. And that's what I mean, though, about the model, because you can wrap it up with that point, is that... If there's a problem, you and I will say, here's a problem. I, I I have never felt like any of this was, I'm going to be right and you're going to be wrong. I'm like, cool. If you have a better model, like present that. If you have a better model to explain. If everything grows better, longer at stretch, because people will say the calves. Well, I'm like, okay, explain what the adaptations that are occurring at the calves are. I don't have a problem with this. Just explain to me what they are with better measurements. Because I, I we do have fascicle link measurements on the gastroc. I I'd like I sent you that review, that stretch review at the end of the year, right? So there's fascicle link measurements, and I'm like that presents a real problem. So it's yes. like nobody's trying. To, I think the difference in you and I is this: I'm not. I feel like when the the mounting evidence on metabolic stress just kept going and kept going and kept going. People, it was just ignored by the people who kept saying that it caused hypertrophy. I'm like, well, what about all this evidence that just keeps mounting that says it absolutely does not? It was just ignored. When clearly muscle damage wasn't going to pan out, it was just ignored. You and I have take, tackled this stuff head on. Like we've said outright, okay, the calves are absolutely a problem for this whole model. There's, We're like, it doesn't fit. It, in fact, if anything, if you just take the calf data, it would say the model doesn't work, Right. You're like, well, your model can't explain anything about the calves. And we're like, you're right. You're right. It you're right. It explains we, literally everything else. It explains all. So if you have 100 things, it will explain 99 of them, like a Jay-Z song. So like, but the calves do not fit in with the model because of their length attention relationship. Uh, we don't really have research that tells us their leverages at, you know, whatever degrees of plantar flexion to dorsiflexion, flexion. We don't know exactly how that works. It would make sense that the gastroc has more leverage in a more uh, knee extended dorsiflex uh, ankle position. That would make sense. That the gastroc has because, but then the length of tension relationship that we keep seeing in the studies where they've measured the operating sarcomere length don't make sense. Really, it's just one thing. The more I talk about Well, it, actually, pause on that for a moment because we've been just saying that our our very approximate rule of thumb is that muscles have their active length tension plateaus where they have best leverage. Yes. That fits with the gastro. If the gastro has best leverage in the stretch position, both extended knee and extend and, and dorsiflexed ankle, then that's literally what you're seeing. So that but where's Much. the tension coming from? What do you mean, where's the tension coming from? Well, if they're just on the ascending limb and we're only getting... No, they're on the plateau in the stretch position. They're on the plateau in the stretch position. That's that's what we've got that data That would actually... For. Wait. The data should... In the stretch position, they're on the plateau. I thought they were on the plateau. Yeah. I thought they were on the ascending limb even in the stretch position. 
No, no. They get to the plateau on, on at the end of the well, at the well, end of the range of okay. motion. Okay. Well, then never mind. Well, you, but it still doesn't explain how they experience um, fascicle length increases when you start stretching them. They shouldn't. They shouldn't do. That's the problem. That's the real problem. They they experience. That's the point of the stretching. That's what I just said a minute ago. I said, "Where's the tension coming from?" Well, they're not getting no, which tension because passive tension is necessary to produce passive length increases. Yes, and they and they, they don't they don't experience passive tension in the stretch. So how are you getting a passive length increase? It makes no sense. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the only problem with the calves. Everything else works. There's just this weirdness where you start to see fascicle length increases occurring where you shouldn't get that. That's why I sent you that. that yes, I know that's why you said. I do actually like, need why the are we, Why do we see the fascicle length increases in the, in the cat? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and I still don't know. Nothing's changed. <laughs> so if anybody's listening to this and you have. I think the, these two guys are completely crazy. Yeah. If anybody's listening to this and you've made it this far, if you have any kind of stroke, to get a, a, a transverse plane uh, leverage, um, like moment arm study done for the pecs and for the anterior delts with the rear delts and the traps, um, then we would appreciate that a whole lot. And what would we want for the cat? What would, if we wanted somebody to design don't know a what the question is, because we don't know what the problem is. Well, if we wanted to get a, a study done for the cats, what would we really need to look at? That would fill in the final gaps. How do we get fascicle length increases if in the stretch position that the, the operating sarcomere length is only getting to the plateau? We could we could start with a study that um, people would actually do, which is um, do a, a a stretched position calf muscle training program um, and and see if that produces fascicle length increases. Because I think, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think the only ones that have been done so far have not measured fascicle lengths. I think they've only measured muscle thickness. You mean for the calves? Yeah. I think that the, the, the stretched and contracted position calf muscle studies have not measured fascicle lengths. Am I, am I incorrect? I think that the, no, the, the, the meta-analysis I sent you from December. Is that a stretching study? Yeah, it was a static stretching meta-analysis. Yeah, I'm not talking about static stretching. I'm talking about You're strength talking training. About strength training. So a strength training study, long and short calf muscle lengths. You also you mean like you mean like a literally yeah. like a, yeah. a standing or a, or a or a calf like a toe press where you're loaded in the stretch position. I'm 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 actually might have to just go and check while we're talking because I I don't think from memory fascicle lengths have been measured in those papers. No, they no 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 no. On the they measured fascicle length in all the stretching studies. That's that's what that whole meta analysis from from December showed was that they just looked at, it was all stretching. It was a static stretching meta-analysis. So yeah, it wasn't strength training, it was just static stretching. See, most of them measure vascular length increases. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't expect them to, this is where my, my, my filing system doesn't really work that well when I'm trying to do something quickly. Um, but yeah, a fascicle length study on strength training in the calves will be really interesting um, because I think most of the fascicle length studies in the calves are stretching studies, not strength training studies. Uh, yeah, and I think that's because a lot of that's like it's geared towards like rehab stuff. So a lot of those, they're, they're trying to figure out how they work in the physical therapy protocols. So a lot of those are. There was that light load. There was that light load study done where they they 
um, researchers wanted to figure out whether the cars responded better to light loads. To high, heavier loads or light loads? Which yeah, one? You you're right. One. Which one did that? What did they use for a measurement on that one? From memory, they found basically no differences. No right. differences well, between they, the studies. They just, did they between just the measure? Groups. It, was it just a muscle, basically a muscle thickness measurement? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't measure fascicle length in that study. The name of that one is no. Wow, I can't wonder what that study was called. I don't. The, this is the problem when you've read so many studies, you just start to lose track of which one was doing which. I got it. No, I oh. can't remember the name of that study at all. You're talking about the calves one? Yeah, the one they did a seated versus standing calf raise. I just cannot remember the name of that study. Um, the name of that one is Do the Anatomical and Physiological Properties of a Muscle yes, is Adaptive Response yes, to Different Loading Protocols? Yes, um, and yes, and that one was heavy and light. I just wanted to say real quick Did it measure fascicolax? It didn't, did it? I can almost assure you it did not measure fascicle length. I just wanted to see here participants, training procedures. Uh, I wanted to see measurements. Here we go. Muscle thickness. Yeah. There we so go. muscle thickness ultrasound imaging was used to obtain measurements of muscle thickness of the medial gastroc, lateral gastroc, and soleus. So it doesn't really tell us anything. <laughs> Well, there we go. Well, they did test muscle strength, test isometric ankle plantar flexion strength. The position uh, was secured in a uh, dynamo. And then, of course, there was the, the recent gastroc study, but that again didn't test, um, that again didn't test uh, vascular lengths. Wait a minute. Okay. So to test isometric ankle plantar flexion strength, a participant was secured in a dynamometer with his hips positioned to 85 uh, degrees of flexion, knees in full extension. So basically like a, a cap press on a, on a leg press. Knees in full extension, testing ankle to 90 degrees, which is where the foot was 90 degrees relative to the tibia. So they were doing... So it's a mid-range isometric uh, uh, strength test. Each trial consisted of a maximum, maximum voluntary isometric effort that lasted for five seconds, followed by 30 seconds of rest. So that doesn't help us because what I was, you know what I was looking at for there, right? Stretch position strength test. Mm. Yeah. But if they're at 90, that's basically at the plat. That would be like the plateau. Yeah. So it doesn't see if they would have done one thing there. No, I know, I know, I know. If they would have done one thing there, that would have actually told it to give us an insight. So if they would have tested at a more dorsiflex position, yes, then that would have actually told us a little, a little something. Yeah. So we need, we literally need like one more piece for the calves, like something that just gives us some insight. We like it's like we're missing one thing right there. It was interesting that I looked at that one because I was like, well, they don't tell us, but they are telling us that isometric 
uh, maximal isometric contraction increased at 90 degrees, which is a, basically a neutral, like a neutral foot position when the ankle yeah. is 90 degrees uh, to the tibia. So that suggests maybe there isn't a preferential increase at long lengths. It would be really interesting to get some fascicle length data on strength training in the carbs. That that would be pretty cool. If anybody uh, listening to this at this point actually knows that that exists and I've completely forgotten it, then please do tell us. It'd be much appreciated. I'm, gonna I'm, go I'm actually going to go and check it. I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> so if we have one study that tells us if they did a isometric contraction strength test at a longer length, that would fill in a little bit. That of would gap. also be interesting because that would be a proxy for... Um, uh, fast length increases as well but ultimately you know we, it doesn't take away the fact that we've still got the problem with the static stretching studies showing fast length increases the interesting part about that and then we'll wrap this one up though is that it, it does fit the other part of the model and that is the calves will experience active insufficiency because they're on the ascending limb. And we have the studies where they were literally held in a short position a more plantar flex position they shrunk that was the that was the one right they shrunk so they'd use that leg press where they were in a dorsiflex position the quads here the calves the gastroc literally shrunk in size because they were held in active insufficiency so if you're in a short position for the calves there's too much uh, or there's um um they there's not enough overlap between actin and myosin to produce any force so they don't experience any tension in that short position yeah i'm 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 kind of on the fence about that study because i would argue that the gastroc as a knee flexor would drop out during a multi-joint movement that involves knee extension so and i know that the gastroc isn't a great knee flexor throughout the entire range of motion so you can yeah, kind of argue like the both first ways. 15 degrees or so you can argue it both ways because obviously the biceps brachii experience the same issue See, but ultimately i think there's there's not multiple ways of interpreting that study the calves are an absolute pain in the butt man they really are Really the model. But that, that's been the whole point. The, the model is really, really good at explaining. The stimulating match model is really, really good at explaining training variables. That's what it's there for. That's why it exists, because that's what it's based on. Um, ultimately, if you know other people want to argue that stimulating match model is not valid, then they need to have a model that explains these training variables in a more elegant way. Bro, I'd never thought about this before until just now, but you could create... Um, you know how we were doing webinars and stuff we've done for the educational portal. The you could have the stimulating reps model bubble at the top, and then you could have all of the little the pieces underneath it that fit right into it. Some everything from so you'd have a motor unit recruitment. I don't think it would fit on a um, on a on a single infographic. Well, whatever. Yeah, basically. Not a single infographic, but you'd have the simulating reps model at the top, and then you would have motor unit recruitment. You'd have the force velocity relationship. Um, you would have neuromechanical matching. You'd have the length and tension relationship, and they would all essentially kind of feed into what we're looking at there. I'll think about it. I'm just saying that's what, if we think about the main components, that you and I, when we look at research now, we you can always break it down to one of those components for the most part of what's going on. Are we dealing with the length and tension relationship issue? Are we dealing with a motor recruitment issue? Are we dealing with an actual mechanical tension issue? Are we dealing with a neuromech neuromechanical matching? The only one I would fit in there. Or a fatigue issue. Yeah, exactly. Or a fatigue issue. Um, and then the other one you have to fit in with neuromechanical matching. I always think it's it's a combination of two parts, kind of like mechanical tension is. Um, 
mechanical, when we talk about stimulating reps, it's, it's two parts. It's, it's motor year recruitment and force velocity relationship. Neuromechanical matching to me, when we're talking about hypertrophy, is, is two parts. It, it's the, the internal leverage at a joint angle, and then it, it's the resistance profile. Because if you don't have any resistance at that particular joint angle, then wherever the peak resistance is going to occur in that range of motion, whatever has the best leverage at that point is what's going to get the greatest degree of activation. So it's kind of the neuromechanical matching thing. To me, when I think of it in my head, it's, it's those two parts of the resistance profile and the internal leverage. But I think you could literally build out a, an umbrella of everything feeding into that one funnel. Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, stimulating rep theory tells you it's only two factors. It's only ever two factors. It's just recruitment and tension. I mean, how you get to the recruitment issue is generally going to be a fatigue problem. And how you get to the tension issue is either going to be a fatigue problem or it's going to be um, a length tension or force velocity problem. You know, if we ever end up doing workshops, I think there would be a thing like show at the end so that everything feeds into the stimulating reps model and here's all of the principles that essentially – like you can account for because that was the detraction was like the effective or simulating refs model doesn't account for these. And we're, we always said they do. It does. It does. Like nothing ever brought up didn't account for those. Right. Because the, the fatigue issue, like, well, yeah, it's, that's because people think stimulating reps means the number five. That That's <laughs> what people think. That, that's what they, they, they literally think I'm that thick. That I, I literally just have a number, and that's that's all I've got. And it's like, come on, guys! It's 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 a physiological I model. It as an example. It was just using an example. You know, we're just talking about motor unit recruitment, right? It was just using an example. So in all the research and EMG and everything we see, there's an example where we tend to see full motor unit recruitment at around a low. That's about a five rep max. That's the only reason why the whole five reps was like kind of a right. Like that was the thing. It's like that's where we see tendency. Or, or in the research where you go to failure, you tend to see a plateau off in the last, it was like the last four, like in motor unit recruitment, the last four, four to five reps. So I'm like, well, that's generally where you see it. I, I, if, if I'm honest, I'm really not that interested in the numbers. It's like, okay, numbers, people want the numbers and that's fine. I understand that. But ultimately what I'm interested in is, does this model explain? Yep training variables can it be used to predict what we're going to see in future research you know is it useful it is it's better than any model that exists you know so um yeah there we go so okay. um that's that's kind of what the purpose i of think if you take is. this 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 podcast and you stack it on top of the the stimulating reps podcast that we did and then the principles that every, every educator needs to understand and you actually go through those and you can understand those three podcasts back to front you pretty much will have more than 99.9% of anybody weighing in on these topics anywhere on the internet are going to really understand. You should. Like, if you can understand the, those three front and back. I'd agree with that. All right. That is our episode for today. As always, Chris, thanks for joining me, man. I hope you have a good rest of your night. And for the rest of you, see you all next time.